Good Thursday morning, everyone. We are so glad you're with us. So glad Phil is here in a very still hazy New York. It's like borderline apocalyptic. I know, my kids are kind of freaked. Surreal, and it's actually very serious. And I, spent, I went down the rabbit hole of NASA scientists of last did. night, and um, we have a lot to learn, talk about. And yeah. for those on the West Coast who are like, welcome. Welcome, welcome. to what we've this been is living in. a very, in. very real and significant issue. Yeah. And climate change. Yeah. In front of all of it. We'll get into all of what is happening here in the air, in our skies. We have a lot of other news. Let's get started with five things to know for this Thursday, June 8th. As we just talked about, another round of very thick snow smoke from these Canadian wildfires said to blanket parts of the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic today. More than 75 million Americans facing alerts due to really poor air quality. And sources tell CNN the Justice Department has informed Donald Trump's legal team that he is a target in the classified documents investigation. It's a sign that an indictment could be near. And happening soon, Joran Vandersloot will leave his prison in Peru aboard a flight to Alabama. He'll be facing fraud charges in connection to the 2005 disappearance of Natalie Holloway. Also, former Vice President Mike Pence delivering his toughest takedown yet of his former boss and now political rival. Pence saying Donald Trump should, quote, never be president again. And Lionel Messi is taking his talents to South Florida. I like the LeBron connection there. And a surprise announcement, <laughs> the soccer star said he intends to play for Major League Soccer's Inter Milan. Seen in this morning starts right now. Okay, so let's begin here though, because I couldn't believe it when I looked out the window yesterday afternoon. It got a lot worse after we left the yeah. show. It looked like we were on Mars. <laughs> Did, but I think what was kind of the most surreal part, everybody in masks again, yeah. kids, uh, uh, outdoor activities being canceled mm -hmm. down in Washington, D.C. My wife called to make clear. Was it kids bad canceled. down there? I don't think it's as bad up here. Yeah. New York City is being compared air quality wise to the absolute worst in polluted uh, cities in the world. Yeah. Delhi, places like that. It's, uh, it's a very real, very tangible issue right and now. And a very important reminder of how important it is that we focus on the climate. No question. Climate change and all that is happening. So this morning, you're waking up to this, likely if you're in the Midwest or along the East Coast, tens of millions of Americans facing another day of breathing in thick smoke from these Canadian wildfires as it smothers the East Coast and the Midwest. These are live pictures this morning, just after 6 a.m. Eastern here of New York City, where the air quality is so bad. It is this morning the most polluted major city in the entire world right now. Yesterday, as Phil said, I mean, that... That's Manhattan looking like the surface of Mars. You could barely see the skyline through the orange haze. The bulk of this smoke is shifting to where Phil's family is, Washington, D.C., and Baltimore. Here's a look at some of New York's iconic landmarks, blanketed in this reddish brown. The governor calling it an emergency crisis. Hospitals saw an increase in patients with respiratory issues. And this wildfire smoke isn't just a health problem. The blinding conditions led to a ground stop in New York's LaGuardia Airport with many flights either canceled or delayed. Big sporting events, Broadway shows also canceled. Some public schools closed today. Others have canceled all outdoor activity. Take a look at this time lapse of New York City and the skyline uh, turning dark orange in the matter of minutes, a few hours, uh, over a few hours, as waves of smoke continue to pour down from Canada. Athena Jones, our colleague, and our friend is again live outside, masked up. It's worse or got worse yesterday since when you joined us on the show. What about today? Good morning, Poppy. Well, here in New York, the smoke has abated somewhat, but it's still at an unhealthy level, which is 
especially bad for sensitive groups. Now, officials have warned things could worsen again later in the day. It's the same pattern we saw yesterday. But as you noted, the bulk of the smoke that hit New York is expected to shift south to affect Baltimore and Washington, D.C. From New York. Very, very scary. Just walking down the street and feeling like I'm going to have an asthma attack. To Lansing, Michigan. I noticed a little bit of a difference, you know, with being able to breathe right, coughing more. To Washington, D.C., and even as far south as Raleigh, North Carolina, unhealthy air blanketing a large swath of the United States. Oh, look. That's fire. From over 400 active wildfires burning in Canada as of Wednesday afternoon. More than half of them determined to be out of control, according to the Canadian Interagency Forest Fire Centre. Last year and this year, uh, the worst wildfire season uh, we've ever had right across the country. Canada's wildfire season got off to an intense start in May. And it's unusual to see so much destruction this early. It picked up aggressively this month, largely in Quebec. More than 9 million acres have burned in Canada so far this year, 15 times the normal amount. Smoke from those fires traveling hundreds of miles, affecting cities all across New York State. This is the worst air quality we've experienced in over 20 years. This is hard to breathe right now. Governor Kathy Hochul said New York State is making 1 million N95 masks available to the public due to ongoing poor air quality that could be harmful for everyone or even hazardous for some. I know that times like this can be scary. It can be shocking for many New Yorkers when you step outside, uh, when you smell and breathe this air. New Yorkers being urged to stay indoors as much as possible because particles in wildfire smoke can infiltrate the lungs and enter the bloodstream. Too much smoke inhalation has been linked to conditions like asthma and heart disease. The best protection is to avoid being outside until the air clears. Officials warning the smoke will continue to impact much of the East Coast until at least the weekend. I want to be clear, while there may be potential for significantly improved conditions by Friday morning, smoke predictability that far out is low. With that in mind, near Governor Kathy Hochul said that while they expect conditions to improve, possibly by this weekend, that doesn't mean it won't happen again. As one of our CNN meteorologists put it, this could be something we deal with off and on throughout the remainder of the summer. Fire season is just beginning in Canada. Poppy? Wow. Off and on through the remainder of the summer. Athena, thank you very much. I know it's not easy conditions being out there for you and your team. We appreciate the reporting. We want to drill in a little bit on what Athena was just saying. I want to bring in meteorologist Derek Van Dam for the latest forecast on where the smoke is moving. Derek, I think the biggest question right now across the East Coast, when is relief coming? Yeah, Phil, you know, uh, it is all dependent on the wind direction, right? Uh, where it's bad for somebody, somebody today, it's going to be worse for somebody else tomorrow, depending on exactly that wind direction. So this morning, we are waking, as Athena noted, some improvement on the visibility, but of course, still hazardous air in New York City. But look at Philadelphia, just over a mile of visibility, more the same for Washington, D.C. Uh, and you know what? We've already talked about this, but this is incredible to note. New York City topping the list of the 
most polluted major cities across the entire planet right now as of 555. We just updated that. So what is this air quality index that we keep talking about? Well, this is the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency's way of communicating to you and I the quality of the air that we breathe. It uses these color codes to help convey that message, and it also explains to groups uh, how they may be impacted. So if we're talking about 200 to 300 AQI index, we're talking very unhealthy. Now look at that hazardous uh, purple color. That's 300 to 500 AQI index. And uh, for a point there on Wednesday evening, Philadelphia, New York City, and Trenton all in that hazardous air. Now you can see these dots. These are all the reporting stations for the AQI index. Several purples, several reds. Bottom line, what you need to know, it is very unhealthy air that we're breathing and it is all thanks to the wildfire smoke to the north. But check this out. As we progress this near surface smoke forecast, you can see how it clears from New York City. But then just as I mentioned at the beginning of this broadcast, it'll shift to a different location. The Ohio River Valley, parts of the Great Lakes, Detroit, Cleveland, Cincinnati. You've got the potential for more smoke and unhealthy air as the wind pattern shifts ever so slightly. Poppy, Phil. Derek Van Dam with the latest. Thanks so much. Also this okay. morning, new developments in one of the many investigations facing former President Trump. Sources say the Justice Department has told Trump's legal team that he is a target of special counsel Jack Smith's criminal investigation into the possible mishandling of classified documents. This target letter is really the clearest signal yet that Trump is facing a possible indictment. He has repeatedly denied wrongdoing and argues he declassified everything while he was president. Our colleague Evan Paris joins us now. What does this mean? People will wake up, they will hear your target letter, they will want yeah. to know what does that indicate? Good morning, Poppy. Well, we haven't been here before. This is a, a really big moment, certainly, uh, in all of these investigations of the former president. Uh, even during the Mueller investigation, uh, prosecutors really, and the investigators, never really got this close to saying that they were going to or possibly going to indict uh, the, the then sitting president, right, or that he uh, was guilty of some kind of crime. And so uh, what, what has happened now uh, in uh, recent weeks is that Donald Trump has been officially notified that he is the target of a criminal investigation. And look, that was pretty obvious already to the former president, given the fact that the FBI uh, got a search warrant, they searched his property at Mar-a-Lago, in that, in the in the search warrant, they described a list of three crimes that they were investigating. So uh, he he is known that he is front and center. He's the only one, obviously, who uh, you know w was willfully retaining these documents, uh, despite the fact that the uh, the National Archives and the the federal government were trying to retrieve this. So the, what happens next is that uh, the former president has the right to present some evidence to prosecutors, saying uh, that he should not be charged. He can go to the ask to go speak to the grand jury to present his side of the story. We do not anticipate that the former president is going to do that. Again, this is a step that uh, the Justice Department uh, has at its disposal. They don't have to tell people that they are the target of a criminal investigation, but they can do that. And it usually, usually indicates that they are close to bringing charges against that person. Yeah. Very clearly seems to be moving in that direction. Um, one question yeah. I had, though, Evan, our, our stellar show team picked up um, what seemed to be a new defense last night from a former yeah. Trump attorney when it comes to the documents themselves. I want you to listen to it. Yeah. Simply the fact that it has a classification marking on it, if it does have a classification marking on it, doesn't make it automatically some type of contraband. It has to be national defense information, one. Two, 
under the Presidential Records Act, we're talking about original documents. Not a single one of those marked documents are originals. They're all copies, every single one of them. All right, I'll bite because I'm admittedly a little bit perplexed. Not a PRA expert, right. um, but I, you are, whether you wanted to be or not. Evan, yeah. do you think there's validity to that? No, I don't, I don't think that uh, what I think what he's trying to do is to try to say that um, certainly these documents that were brought to Mar-a-Lago that, uh, well, they don't matter because they are copies of the originals, which, of course, the federal government knows uh, what documents Donald Trump uh, likely took because they have the originals. In, in most cases, they have the originals of these documents. And the fact that you copied these documents doesn't make it not classified, doesn't make it not national security information, right? I mean, if, if in fact, it, it creates and opens new questions, you know, who copied them? Uh, did that person have a right to copy them? Uh, those are the new questions that are opened by this line of defense. Um, Parlatore also said um, that, uh, you know, essentially that the, 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 he has previously said, rather, that it doesn't matter whether the documents are classified or not, that it's national, national defense information. And he's right about that, because that is exactly the crime, the, the, the crimes that the Justice Department says that they're investigating right now, the, the former president for, for possibly violating. And so um, the fact that things are copies uh, really just makes them new uh, documents that the government wants to retrieve, right? If you go into a meeting with Donald Trump and he says things that are classified and you take notes, that document suddenly becomes a, a record that needs to be returned to the National Archives. Guys? Yeah. Fascinating and so important, Evan. Thank you. Well, joining us now to discuss is Jennifer Rogers, a CNN legal analyst, former federal prosecutor. Uh, Jennifer, you've noted that this development, the targeting letter development, uh, suggests prosecutors are close to a charging decision. Uh, again, to Poppy's point, for people who are reading the front page of the newspaper this morning and see charge letter, see kind of what seems to be a methodical progression in this investigation, what should they be thinking about what's coming next? Well, I think we're at the end, Phil. I mean, I think we know now why the Monday meeting was triggered between Trump's defense team and DOJ. They likely got this target letter last week and said, oh, hold on, we want to come in and talk to you. And that's probably why that meeting So what happened. Evan was saying in terms of they will now have an opportunity to come in and kind of give their case or give their side of things, this target letter likely kind of caused that, which they may have done in the meeting. Is that I fair? Think, I think that's right. And these are things that happen at the end, kind of when the investigation is wrapping up. DOJ will send this target letter, give the person an opportunity to appear in the grand jury if they wish to do so, give them an opportunity if they want to come in and pitch why the person shouldn't be indicted, and then it's all wrapped up, time to decide and go to the grand jury for the indictment. Is it rare that someone would not be indicted following a target letter? It is. It is. You, usually they have their mind made up at the time that the investigation is wrapping up and they've seen and evaluated all the evidence. I mean, every once in a blue moon, maybe a defendant's lawyer will raise something in the meeting that causes them to rethink or perhaps to downgrade charges that they had been considering. But for the most part, by the time they've collected all that evidence, they know what they want to do. But that's a big deal. Every, every once in a while is not great odds for the former president here then. For sure. For sure. I mean, I suspect we'll see an indictment fairly soon. Can I ask you one of the I don't want to say complicating factors, but kind of different factors here. Obviously, this is a special counsel investigation. There is separation from the attorney general, but the attorney general still has oversight of what's happening at this point in time. It takes behind the scenes at DOJ. What, what are the conversations going on right now, given there is no precedent for this uh, and what the attorney general, what Jack Smith, the special counsel may be thinking through at the moment? 
Yeah, you know, we haven't gotten much insight into what's happening inside of DOJ. You know, he will have to keep the attorney general you know, generally apprised of what's happening, but we don't know how often they've been meeting, how detailed these meetings are as far as the information going to the attorney general. And I suspect that Merrick Garland appointed Jack Smith in the first place so that he wouldn't really have to be involved in the day-to-day, of course. So Jack Smith and his team, of course, have been working to put all of this together when they feel like they're at a point where they have made their internal decision as a team, of course, they will relay that to Merrick Garland and his folks and talk it through. Uh, but I would be very surprised if Merrick Garland is going to overturn the decision of, of Jack Smith and his team on this. One of uh, the developments we learned this week is that there is a second grand jury and it's in South Florida in Miami. And the Washington Post reporting yesterday on this was really interesting that many of the, if there are these indictments, if there are multiple, a lot of it is going to stem from, from Florida rather than Washington, D.C. Yeah, that was a big surprise because everything's been happening in D.C. You know, it could be that they are planning to indict one, two, or a few people down in Florida for kind of more minor level actions having to do with the obstruction piece. You know, people who were moving documents, for example, or the surveillance tapes, that sort of thing, and they're just peeling those off to handle in Florida. Or it could be the whole thing is going to happen in Florida. I mean, that's really where most of the conduct occurred here. It's where the documents we know were possessed for so long, hidden, the, you know, the, the, certainly the, the basis of the obstruction is down there. So they may have decided for venue purposes that the whole thing should be in Florida, but we just don't know that yet. Can I ask, you know, I asked Evan about this. I'm kind of fascinated by the idea that a copy of a classified document, is, I'm not really, I'm not totally pulling the thread together on what that would might mean because it still seems like it would be classified information. Um, your view, Evan kind of laid out and knocked down to some degree uh, what uh, President, former President Trump's former attorney uh, detailed in terms of that defense. What's your read on it? So if that's going to be their in-courtroom defense as opposed to the magical declassification things that we've heard from Trump outside of the courtroom. Quite an evolution, by the way. Yeah. From yeah. I did it with my mind to it's photocopies, so it's okay. okay. Yeah, if that's going to be their legal defense in court, then it's going to be a short jury deliberation. That's that's not much of a defense. It's, it's helpful to think about it in different buckets. I mean, there are statutes that prohibit uh, having and disseminating national defense information. And that doesn't have to be in a document. That's just information, right? There are statutes that talk about classified information that is classified, stamped with the word classified. That's a different bucket. And then there are things that the Presidential Records Act requires the National Archives to keep. And and that has original documents somewhere in it, right? So like, for example, the letter that was handwritten from President Obama to President Trump, the National Archives wants that. It belongs to the government. That thing, sure, if they made a copy of it and kept it somewhere, that's not going to be a violation. But classified Classified information is classified. Even if there are 10 documents that are all the same, that all say classified, they're all classified. You can't have any of them. National defense information, same thing. So there's no defense here to anything that the special counsel is considering charging. So I think that when they finally do get into the courtroom, that is not what we're going to hear from the I think there's a voluminous team. history of people who have had classified information for whatever reason were charged, and the classified information was copies or photos. I was just thinking about anything. the case against Jack Teixeira right now. Yeah. Exactly. So. Yeah, well, you, exactly. you, you might make 10 copies, right? right. Some stay yeah. at the CIA. One goes to the White House. Right. One goes to yeah. a congressional yeah. committee. Even throughout the government, classified. there are copies. Absolutely. Exactly. Jennifer Rogers, thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you. It. So House Speaker Kevin McCarthy facing a revolt from a group of his own party, hardline House Republicans. They are grinding his agenda to a halt after his debt limit deal with President Biden. Plus this. If Donald Trump is convicted of a crime and you're elected president, would you pardon him? Well, I, I don't want to speak about hypotheticals. 
We'll break down the big takeaways from the CNN Town Hall with Mike Pence as he runs for president and challenges his ex-boss, Donald Trump. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, this morning, Mike Pence is now the first vice president to directly challenge the president who picked him as a running mate just hours after launching his campaign. Pence participated in a CNN town hall where he tried to cast himself as an experienced and traditional conservative while hitting former President Trump over immigration, Vladimir Putin and his actions prior to the Capitol insurrection. Our Kyung Law is live in Des Moines, Iowa with more. Dana, appropriately wishing the vice president happy birthday there as he made the announcement on that day. Well, what's the reaction been from the people in Des Moines? Um, well, we can tell you is that it's it's really something that the people, the voters here, the Republican Party has got to square a, a difficult dance that Mike Pence is having to make. And you really saw it on display at the CNN town hall, a man who was once Trump's deputy, now taking him on in a party that's been reshaped by Donald Trump. Former Vice President Mike Pence launching his campaign for president in Iowa, taking questions and shaking hands with voters at a CNN town hall on his 64th birthday. It's uh, one for the books. Right out of the gate, Pence is disputing former President Donald Trump's claims he could have overturned the results of the 2020 election. I felt that he was, he was asking me to choose between him and the Constitution. I chose the Constitution, and I always will. President Trump was wrong then, he's wrong now. The relationship between Trump and Pence fell apart on January 6th when rioters stormed the Capitol calling for Pence's execution. Trump says he would consider pardoning some of the rioters. Pence disagrees. I have no interest or no intention of pardoning those that, that assaulted police officers or vandalized our Capitol. Pence had this to say about roughly a dozen number of classified documents he found at his residence in Indiana in January. I immediately informed the Department of Justice and uh, uh, I, I'm grateful after our full cooperation that they concluded that it was an innocent full mistake. But stopped short of saying Trump should be indicted by the special counsel for his alleged mishandling of classified documents. This kind of action by the Department of Justice I think would only fuel uh, further division in the country. And let me also say, I think it would also send a terrible message to the wider world. The former vice president also differentiated himself from Trump on foreign policy. When Vladimir Putin rolled into Ukraine, the former president called him a genius. Uh, I know the difference between a genius and a war criminal. And I know who needs to win in the war in Ukraine. And it's the people fighting for their freedom. Pence also signaling to conservative voters that he is their candidate. Well, I strongly support state legislation, including as we did in Indiana, that, buy, that bans all gender transition chemical or surgical procedures for kids under the age of 18. Pence joins a growing field for the Republican nomination, including North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum and former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie launched another bid for the White House, making the cornerstone of his campaign rebuking Trump. Trump, in response, posted this video mocking Christie after the announcement. It just renewed in my own mind 
what a child he is. He's a baby. Um, whenever you want to criticize him um, in any way, that's the way he responds. And we were sitting in and above the audience during the CNN town hall with Mike Pence and really got a, a sense of the reaction as some of those toughest lines against Donald Trump were delivered. And, and something to just note, Poppy, is that those were not his strongest, biggest applause lines. And we also saw that in his kickoff rally in Ankeny, Iowa, is that the crowd, some of them stood up applauding others didn't applaud at all and remain seated. So that really underscores the challenge ahead for the former vice president. It, it, it says it all, I think, Young, for sure. How much do you run on who you are and what you stand for and how much do you run against your former boss? Thank you very much. So ahead in our 7 a.m. Eastern hour, we're going to be joined by North Dakota governor and now presidential candidate Doug Burgum. He's going to join CNN this morning live. Well, he's awake, he's making jokes, and he's already back at work. The latest on the Pope's condition after undergoing surgery. And look at this. Hawaii's Kilauea volcano has erupted and produced lava that bursts that reached about 200 feet into the air. The largest lava fountain is consistently reaching about 50 feet. And these are live pictures. Officials say the eruption is happening within a closed area of Hawaii Volcanoes National Park. And right now, no threat to the locals. Pope Francis is recovering in a hospital this morning in Rome after undergoing surgery. A doctor involved in the procedure says they removed scar tissue and repaired a hernia in the Pope's abdominal wall. He says the pontiff is doing well, already working and already cracking jokes. Now, Pope Francis, who is 86, is set to stay in the hospital for several days, and the Vatican has canceled all his papal audiences through next Sunday. In March, the Pope was hospitalized and diagnosed with bronchitis, and late last month, a fever forced him to cancel several work commitments. A Vatican spokesperson says he's expected to make a full functional recovery from a surgery. So glad to hear that. Live look at Capitol Hill this morning where House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has canceled votes for the rest of the week after a rebellion from within his own party. A handful of hardline conservatives blocking Republican bills from moving forward at all. They say they're protesting the speaker's handling of the debt ceiling negotiations. After hours of talks yesterday, Speaker McCarthy said it's not clear what the group wants specifically. There's a numerous different things they're frustrated about. Um, so we'll listen to them, we'll solve this. Just like every time we go through here, we've got a small majority. Uh, there's a little chaos going on, but uh, the focus I always keep is right in front of the windshield, the American public, and we're gonna work to solve the American public's problems. So you are usually they're trying to figure out what they all want and how they can all get along. What's going on? Why does this matter so much? Um, this is going to be a 30-minute segment on congressional procedure, which no is TV gold. Guys. Yeah, no, this is exactly what everybody wants. Um, but the procedure is what matters here, right? So obviously, Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, is coming off a major... Uh, you could call it a victory, I think, to be able to get more than two-thirds of his conference yeah. to support that debt ceiling agreement. However, he infuriated some Republicans, the hardline right Republicans. Remember the 15 votes it took Kevin needed. McCarthy uh, to become speaker, who, A, believed that uh, promises that were made, not written down, but made during that handshake vote process, promises. handshake pro promises, were broken by the agreement that he reached with President Biden. Uh, and there's also some other issues about a single piece of legislation uh, and, a, and a Republican and what commitments were made. Or what, and the gun. Yes. Yeah. 
Um, here's why this matters. So believe it or not, there are rules in the United States House of Representatives. Doesn't seem that way sometimes. And one of those rules is to govern floor debate, to basically set the framework to actually vote on legislation. You have to vote on the rule first. No, it doesn't seem to make any sense. But trust me, it happens. These rules are considered kind of pro forma. The party in power always supports the rule, almost always supports the rule. And then that sets the framework. If people want to vote against the underlying legislation, they that's can. totally fine. Rules don't fail. Majorities don't lose Except rule it votes. Just did. They just did for the first time since 2002. So for procedural nerds, this is like a huge moment. This is a big deal. What it really is is about a dozen conservatives showing that they have in a very slim majority real mechanisms to put new pressure on Speaker McCarthy. They're not calling for his ouster. They're not moving to try and uh, push a motion to vacate. So they're going maybe a little bit level below that. But they have frozen the entire House floor. The bills they were supposed to vote on. All part of the Republican agenda. All say, things they want the to vote for. Way of what they want, right. but they're sending a clear message. So how does this end? We don't know yet. But what it shows, and what they're trying to show, they have power. They can shut everything down. They're not moving to remove Kevin McCarthy, mm -hmm. but he needs to find a resolution to this fast. They're flexing, flexing muscles, a little bit, as one yeah. would say. Yeah, flexing. Thanks for the wonk. We appreciate it. Live pictures out of Philadelphia this morning, where the air quality there is terrible. It's currently labeled. Hazardous. Our Danny Friedman is outside in Philly this morning with a mask, as so many people are this morning. Good morning. Good morning, Poppy. I'm Danny Freeman, and coming up on CNN this morning, I'm just outside of Philadelphia, and I'm going to tell you how the city of brotherly love is dealing with these unhealthy smoking conditions. This is what my view from Jersey City normally looks like looking over Manhattan compared to today. You're looking at the view from New Jersey as smoke from raging Canadian wildfires affects more than 75 million people in more than a dozen states from the Midwest to the Northeast to the Southeast. New York City right now has the worst air quality in the world. This orange haze blanketed the city throughout Wednesday. Now, look at this time lapse from the World Trade Center. It shows just how conditions worsened over a matter of hours. Schools suspended outdoor activities. The Yankees, among several pro sports teams that postponed games. Air travel also disrupted. Some hospitals reporting an increase in respiratory issues. CNN's Danny Freeman is live right outside Philadelphia. And Danny, you've been on this story. What's it look like today? What are we expecting going forward? Uh, yeah, Phil, to put it bluntly, it looks pretty bad out here today. We're in Camden looking across the Delaware at what is normally a very beautiful Philadelphia skyline. You can really see nothing over my right shoulder right now, but vaguely you should be able to see City Hall, the Comcast building, but pretty much nothing. And of course, the Ben Franklin Bridge over my left side. Listen, conditions fill overnight into this morning, still at the very hazardous level. But at the moment, the city is in that code red status right now. That means, you know, outdoor events, they're uh, expected to be limited. Masks are recommended for everyone. And I and other people in the Philadelphia, we've been closing our doors and windows just to try to keep that smoke and smoky smell out of our homes. The Philadelphia School District, they actually put out a press release in the past 30 minutes or so saying classes are still on. They're expecting the level to be downgraded to a code orange. So that means that students will still be primarily inside. Windows will be shut at schools, but they're hoping that as the day goes on, the smoke will dissipate. I actually had a chance to speak with Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro yesterday about this air quality issue. He said the worst was expected overnight into this morning. Take a listen to his advice for Pennsylvanians. 
we want to encourage people just to be safe. Um, I'll give you a pretty simple example. I was getting ready to go out for a run this morning rather than going outside and doing that. And I don't have asthma or any other issues like that. I worked out in the house. Um, so just want to kind of encourage people to be vigilant. If you do have acute health issues, be really mindful of your time outside. And hopefully this will pass uh, very soon. Now, Phil, you said last night the Yankees game was canceled here in Philadelphia. Phillies versus Tigers, that was postponed to tonight as well. Everyone hoping that we can play ball this evening, but only if this weather improves. Phil? Danny, great reporting as always. Thanks so much. Let's bring in Dan Westervelt. He is a climate change and atmospheric scientist with Columbia University. He's also an expert on air pollution and an advisor to the State Department. Good morning. Morning. We were all stunned, remain stunned. You are not. Why? Well, I think with increasing climate change and increasing warming, uh, we can expect more and more of these kind of wildfires to continue. And so while I think that the, the phenomenon happening here in New York is a little bit surprising, overall this wildfire contribution to air quality in the U.S. is something that we'll see more of in the future. We heard um, one of our colleagues say earlier this hour, this could, or Derek Van Dam, this yep. could happen much more this summer. Should we buckle up? Like, Are we going to have to keep our kids inside, not go to summer camp some days? Yeah, I wouldn't really go that far. I think that the point is, is that we're very early in the fire season. It goes all the way to September. So yeah. there could be more of these this year, but I wouldn't quite go that far. Okay. I think one of the fascinating things about this moment, it's a convergence of several mm -hmm. factors, right? Obviously, it's the wildfires. I think it's the weather, low-pressure systems that I frankly don't understand, but I understand there's several pieces of this. But this is something that happens fairly regularly out west. This is something uh, I've seen in traveling with President Biden. He's gone out to several disaster areas. Connected to climate, it's easy to say, well, this is climate change. This is part of... Why? Tell me why this is. That's a great question. Thank you. So there's a couple of factors, but the most clear one is that global warming, climate change leads to symptoms that make wildfires worse. And these symptoms include things like hotter temperatures, uh, drier conditions, worsening drought, changing precipitation patterns. All of these things lead to increased wildfires in frequency and also in the amount of area burned, which is just fuel for more of these air quality issues. Can this be reversed? Well, uh, the best we can do right now is to lower our exposure to what's being done out of what's what is out there. And so this is why people are warned to stay inside and wear masks and things like that. In terms of climate, it's not too late to act on climate change. So, yes, this, yeah. this could be slowed. Could I, on the the actual kind of tangible effect of this right now, if you're in one of these cities, as you're walking around yesterday, I was outside just staring up and thankful to an individual, a New Yorker, who looked at me and said, bro, go inside, um, which was good advice. But sh should you be wearing masks right now? Like, What is happening to a person walking outside or their mm. children walking outside right now? Yeah, I mean, waking up today, we are seeing pretty much similar levels of air pollution as we saw yesterday, where it was really bad. So we're in the unhealthy range for all adults. Uh, so at this point today, I think, yes, it, it's a good idea to wear masks if you have to be outside for a prolonged period of time. Thank you very much for your expertise. We appreciate it. Thank really, you. really helpful answers. A lot of questions people have. You're welcome. Uh, next, a CNN exclusive. Hear from the woman who spent more than six hours trapped under that rubble in that Davenport, Iowa building that collapsed. Like, imagine hearing a building get tore down or something like that. If you're standing outside and you're just hearing all the, that's how it sounded when, when it just, everything just fell. Everything just fell. And you fell. And I fell. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. 
Now to a CNN exclusive, a woman in Iowa who was trapped under her collapsed apartment building for hours says she did not hesitate when first responders said they needed to amputate her leg on site. Quanisha Barry is speaking out for the first time since that building collapsed two weeks ago. She and her wife are now suing the city of Davenport and the building's owner. They're accusing them of negligence, citing a city inspection that found the building was not up to code. Here's CNN's Omar Jimenez. You don't see yourself as a victim? No. I'm a survivor. Um, I fought my way like, like hell to get through that day. What were you doing that day when all of a sudden, I mean, everything changed? It was a normal day for us. It was like a crack in the window. Then it continued within the same minutes. We've seen another one, and I'm like, ooh, um, maybe something is, is a little, I'm, I'm a little nervous. I got a little nervous. I said, something's wrong. We both were at the door. Mm-hmm. We each had a cat in our hands, and I reached to grab the door. Like, imagine hearing a building get tore down. That's how it sounded. When, when it just, everything just fell. Everything just fell, and I fell. While help got to the scene quickly, they couldn't get Peach out for at least six hours. What were you thinking when all of a sudden, I mean, hours were going by and you still were, were trapped? I have to make it for her especially. Um, I have to survive this, I have to be able to tell this story. I got these metal pipes of water, gallons of water just pouring on me. I'm just soaking wet with metal pieces everywhere. And um, I was taking pieces of the floor, anything I could find around me, like covering my head so that I didn't drown. In my mind, I'm just like, how could I could be trapped under so much? They were digging me out for hours and hours and hours to the point where they had to cut my foot on the scene. Her doctor says he amputated her leg on the scene. There was nothing to think about. I wanted to live. I didn't want to be trapped. I didn't want to be, um, I didn't want more debris to fall on me because it was already hard enough and to be honest, I didn't want the firefighters to have to be trapped or, or beaten down or bruised with anything. Like, I, I wanted everyone to make it out of there alive. And with no hesitation, amputate what you have to do. Do what you have to do to get me out of here. What do you think when you, when you look down there? That one. On the scene, a red dress marks where their apartment once stood. An apartment building where just days before the collapse, inspectors noticed a brick surface had separated from an interior wall and appeared ready to fall imminently, according to a letter addressed to whom it may concern from an engineer dated May 24th. You know how they knew about it? They were told time and time again. It's why Peach and Lexis Berry are suing, alleging the warning signs were known much earlier than a few days prior. The family wants the owners of the building, the engineers, the contractors held responsible for this tragic and 100% preventable event. But not everything can be recovered in a courtroom. When I closed my eyes, I was just, I heard the cracking again. I heard the falling, the dropping again. It's like, is it going to happen again? Like, am I safe in the building I'm in? What did this take from you? I don't think it really took anything from me. 
because you can't take my peace. You can't take my hope. You, you can't take my power. This is just another stepping stone to my story. Her attitude and strength were just incredible. Her doctor told me that he had to amputate her leg on site because it had become a life and death decision as she started to become unresponsive after being trapped under there for so long. Now, a spokesperson for an owner of the building told me that their hearts go out to everyone displaced and, of course, those who were killed as they try to wrap their head around the building issues. And the city said they couldn't comment on pending litigation. But this is now the second lawsuit to be filed against people that are tied to this building. And, of course, at least for Peach, uh, she feels like this is not going to slow her down. Yeah, just amazing perspective she has. Uh, Omar, thank you so much for that reporting. Well, right now, here's a live look at Washington, D.C., where the air quality is currently labeled very unhealthy. 75 million people across parts of the U.S. are under air quality alerts because of that smoke from Canadian wildfires. Our Brian Todd is standing by live in Washington. Phil, if people in the D.C. area thought it was bad yesterday, they need to brace themselves. It is worse this morning, and it's getting worse later on today. What does the code red air quality alert mean, and what are officials warning people? We'll tell you all about that just ahead. Well, the Denver Nuggets taking the lead in the NBA Finals with a big win over the Miami Heat last night on Miami's home court. The Nuggets now just two games away from clinching their first ever NBA championship. Per usual, Jamal Murray, Nikola Jokic, led the team to victory last night, scoring more than 30 points each. But the first two quarters, they were tight. The Nuggets led by just five at the half. In the third quarter, they pulled away, taking a nearly 20-point lead at one point. 22-year-old rookie Christian Braun helping them get there, the whopping 15 points during the game. Miami clawed back to a nine-point deficit, but was never really able to close the gap. Final score, 109-94. Nuggets now up 2-1 in the series. After the game, Miami's star and leading scorer looked ahead to game four. I feel like we just got to come out with more energy and effort, and um, that's correctable. That's on us as a, as a group. Probably listen to Jimmy Butler. Tomorrow night, they're set to face off again for game four in Miami. Poppy, I got Jokic's name right. Yes! FYI. We are progressing on this program. <laughs> uh, arguably the greatest soccer player of all time. Is this true? Greatest? Yes. Go? Okay. Fact-checked. All-time is taking his talents to South Florida. Lionel Messi says he is to join the Inter-Miami of the MLS. The 35-year-old led Argentina, of course, to that World Cup victory in December. Never forget that match, by the way. It's not clear yet when Messi will debut for Inter-Miami, but demand for tickets already skyrocketing. The get-in price for the team's game on July 21st soared from 29 bucks on Tuesday to 477 bucks on the secondary market after Messi's announcement. How many? The math? What's the math on that? It's a lot. Uh, There's there's more dollars added to it, but it makes sense. Like, he's amazing. He's He's once in a lifetime. He's not washed out or just ending his career in the MLS like uh, foreign guys often do. He's coming. He's still the best in the world. We should do the next hour of the show just highlights. Yeah, because there's no other news going on. Oh, actually, there's a ton of news going on. Can we focus on that? Let's do that. That's why CNN This Morning continues right now. 
New York City had the worst air quality of any major city in the world. The worst air quality in over 20 years. It felt like being on Mars, and it smelled like being in a sauna. You can feel it in the back of your throat. You can taste it here as well. This is the result of a climate crisis in a connected world. Former President Donald Trump has been informed that he is the target of a federal investigation. This could mean that the special counsel's investigation is moving closer to a possible indictment. Jack Smith seems moving on a very fast timeline. He understands the political pressures. It's not just people around that person, it's that person themselves. Indicting a former president of the United States sends a terrible message to the world. How does he separate himself from the man who was his president? I know the difference between a genius and a war crime, and I know who needs to win. If it's not going to happen in Iowa, it's not going to happen anywhere. What do you remember? What were you doing that day when all of a sudden everything changed? Everything just fell, and I fell. While help got to the scene quickly, they couldn't get Peach out for at least six hours. You can't take my hope. You can't take my power. I refuse. That's why I'm still here fighting. You can't take anything from me. Hawaii's Kilauea volcano erupts spectacularly on the Big Island, spewing lava and ash for the second time this year. The shakes were scary. I've never experienced an earthquake, but didn't expect that. The bright orange, it is more amazing than I actually pictured in my mind. As you can see, there's so much going on. It is the top of the hour. We're so glad you're with us on this Thursday. So glad you are here, Phil Madeline, because a lot of this news has to do with Washington. It's often the case these days, but this is major news, both yeah. on the weather front to some degree, climate yeah. change front, but also major news with a former president in a Absolutely. very unprecedented moment we find ourselves in. Something happening that has never happened before, and that is where we begin this morning with new developments in one of the many investigations facing former President Trump. Federal prosecutors have informed Donald Trump's legal team that he is indeed a target in special counsel Jack Smith's classified documents investigation. Sources tell CNN that Trump's legal team received a so called target letter. Those sources have been filled in on the contents of the letter. They have not yet seen it themselves. Now, on Truth Social yesterday, the former president responded, quote, no one has told me I'm being indicted and shouldn't be because I've done nothing wrong. Now, the special counsel has been investigating Trump's handling of classified documents and looking into whether he broke any laws or obstructed justice. So let's bring in CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig. He is also a former assistant attorney, uh, attorney for the Southern District of New York and a former New Jersey state prosecutor. Okay, what Trump said on his Truth Social po uh, post and the target letter are not necessarily, uh, they're two different things. No one's saying he was indicted. A target letter, though, is a very significant thing and indicates that an indictment may be coming. Where do things stand right now? Nobody has ever been happy to get a target letter. However, important to know, it is different from an actual indictment. Let's look at what it means. In any federal investigation, a person can really have one of three statuses. Best case scenario, you're a witness, meaning you just happened to see something, no reason to think you did anything wrong. The middle ground is you could be a subject, meaning you're within the purview of what the grand jury is looking at. Worst case scenario is you are a target. Now, let me show you exactly what it means to be a target. If you look at the Justice Manual, now this is a book on every federal prosecutor's desk. It binds federal prosecutors around the country. Here is the actual definition. It means two important things. It means that prosecutors have substantial evidence linking the person to the commission of crime and who in the judgment of a prosecutor is a putative defendant. That's the word of the day, putative 
It's a lawyer word because it can mean different things to different people. It means an assumed defendant, a likely defendant, not necessarily a certain defendant. So that means different things to different people. In my experience, Phil and Poppy, when a person gets a target letter, it's quite likely, not certain, but quite likely that they will get indicted. The other uh, question about this target letter is, does it stem from both grand juries, right, in in uh, Florida, what's been convened, in Washington, what's been convened? Yeah. We know that it follows, or I guess it preceded the meeting, the big meeting at Maine Justice this week with Trump's lawyers, right? Yeah. So that meeting tells us a lot about timing, because you're not going to have these meetings where a prosecutor invites a defense lawyer in, says to the defense lawyer, go ahead, make your pitch to us, try to convince us why maybe we're wrong to bring this case. Those meetings are naturally going to happen only at the very end of a proceeding. That meeting happened on Monday. We are now on Thursday. So everyone's saying when, when, when. Important to keep in mind. We don't know. This is up to DOJ. They're not facing any external statute of limitations or deadline. But we do know that meeting happened. And to me, that's the biggest indicator that a decision, indict or don't indict, has to be close at hand. So, Ali, Poppy mentioned this. I think this has been a wrinkle of this week in the sense that the discovery that there's a second grand jury down in Florida seems to be more active at the moment than the Washington grand jury, we think, uh, or at least it appears, which had been very active up to this point. Explain why. Yeah, so this is a, a really interesting wrinkle. Everything had been happening in D.C., but now it looks like Florida, uh, Florida has become a new locus of this investigation. Prosecutors are going to have to make a very important decision here, which is where do they charge the case? You have to charge the case where at least some portion of the crime was committed. Now we're seeing action in Florida. It could be that they're considering indicting some of the maybe lesser players in Florida, other players in D.C. It's so important, though, because you're looking at very different jury pools. Donald Trump, politically, very, very unpopular in D.C. He got just over 5% of the vote in D.C. in 2020, 95% or so of the voters went against him. Of course, he won Florida. Prosecutors are not supposed to be thinking about this, by the way. So if they're playing it by the book, Florida is really where more of the action happened. But if they're thinking strategically, prosecutors do sometimes, then D.C. is where they're going to look. That's really interesting. Steve Bannon, a name that everyone knows, now has been subpoenaed yeah. by Jack Smith's investigation. Obviously, there's questions about will he comply with the subpoena? Will this lead to a long, dragged-out fight? But if he does, what would prosecutors want to know from Steve Bannon on both these fronts of what they're probing? Yeah, so Steve Bannon's main involvement, as far as we know, on this is January 6th. He was part of several meetings in those crucial days leading up to January 6th. And then he made some statements that raised a few eyebrows at DOJ. Let's take a quick listen to what he said. What Trump's going to do is just declare victory, right? He's going to declare victory. But that doesn't mean he's the winner. He's just going to say he's the winner. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. Just understand this. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. So now we know that Steve Bannon joins the ranks of other high-ranking White House officials, including Mike Pence, who have testified to the grand jury on January 6th and potentially on Mar-a-Lago as well. Steve Bannon, by the way, we remember, was convicted of contempt of Congress because he defied a January 6th committee. He was sentenced to four months in prison. He doesn't have to serve that yet because he's on appeal. But now he's been subpoenaed to talk to this criminal grand jury. We'll see if he complies. Prosecutors have a lot of questions for him. No question. Ellie, thank you. It helps so much to have you walk through Thanks, all that. All right. 
Let's bring in attorney David Schoen. He was one of the attorneys who represented the former president during his second impeachment trial. He also represented ex-Trump advisor, Ellie was just mentioning, Steve Bannon in 2022 after Bannon was indicted for contempt of Congress. Doug, I want to start with what is a, a, an actual unprecedented moment. It feels like we've had many of them over the course of the last several years, but the target letter. What is your read on what this means? And if you take a step back for a minute, what does this tell you about what is potentially about to happen to a former president of the United States? Right, well, Ellie Honig's exactly right in his description of what a target means. It is based on, it's a term used in the Department of Justice manual, means substantial evidence uh, linking a person, a putative defendant, to a crime. Um, I don't know that it tells us much about the timing, although I would credit uh, some of the pundits who have been saying something may be imminent. But, you know, you can get a target letter at the beginning of a long investigation or right at the end before an indictment. Um, and you're right, also, it is unprecedented. The question then becomes, is there any chance in the world that, that Trump would speak, would testify before the grand jury? Right. Well, it's another good question. They... Um, one often thinks that a defendant has a right to testify if he, gets a, he or she gets a target letter. That's not exactly accurate, but it is Department of Justice policy to allow a defendant who's gotten a target letter to testify if he or she requests it. Um, I can't imagine in this case that it would be in President Trump's interest to testify. I think that, uh, you know, there's an agenda here one way or the other, and I think decisions have been made. Yeah. That's the way I would read the situation. The, an interesting element of this is what charge would be considered. You know, there's a lot of speculation. Um, several of the charges to be considered wouldn't uh, revolve around the idea of there being classified documents. I do think, though, while this is unprecedented, mm -hmm. that it would hold a great danger to President Biden if they were to charge him, uh, charge President Trump under 18 U.S.C. 793E, which is one of the charges being talked about now. That's the retention of government documents. Um, I think there's a real danger there, given the documents that were found with President Biden, because this just requires them to show that the information was national defense information, broadly construed, and that the person knew that he or she did right. something wrong by retaining it. President Biden's got a great deal of experience in government. President Trump was a businessman. But, David, that's a political consideration, which shouldn't be part of this legal calculus, no? I think you're right, except that there are prudential considerations that attend every decision whether or not to indict. And I think those prudential considerations are very important here. I don't think there's any purpose, any meaningful purpose served in an indictment in this case. And it's not a question of someone being above the law. There are decisions that have to be made. I think I, I personally do not believe that President Trump in any way knew or believed he was doing anything wrong or illegal with respect to any of the documents there. You mentioned two things that I want to follow up on. One, the idea of an agenda. I just want to get clarity on what you meant by that in particular, but also that it wouldn't be in the president's interest to testify. Why not? Is that based on your experience with him? Is that based on just how he operates generally? Or is that what you would advise any client? I generally would advise any client that unless there was some compelling evidence that I knew that the government wasn't aware of that I think would, that I thought at that point in the investigation would change minds, I certainly wouldn't have my uh, client testify. First of all, a lawyer cannot be in the room with the client. Um, the, the grand jury is really run by the prosecutor. It's a very dangerous situation, even for an innocent person. Um, so that's sort of, I guess, the second part. By an agenda, I mean that this thing is pretty well along uh, right now, this investigation has been going on quite some time. I'll tell you what concerns me, to be perfectly frank. Um, I don't like the specter 
of having folks like Andrew Weissman, Norm Eisen, and others um, who have made a career now over the last couple years of going after Donald Trump, writing a memo, for example, to the Justice Department, to Lisa Monaco, advising her on how uh, you could prosecute President Trump. It plays into the suspicions that maybe half the country has about this sort of shadow government and these conspiracy mm -hmm. theories. I think it's just a bad idea. Just to note, also, if, he, if Trump were to testify before the grand jury, he wouldn't get his lawyers in there with him. He could consult them out of the room, but he wouldn't have them by his side. But I just want to ask you, you represented Steve Bannon. You don't anymore, right? I represent him in the appeal of his uh, contempt conviction. I would just, one thing I would add to what Eli Honig said is, not only is the case on appeal, the trial judge who uh, presided over the conviction has written that he, he believes it's likely that the conviction will result, uh, the appeal will result in a new trial and a reversal of the conviction. Okay, but not in this, in, in this probe. My question to you is about right now. No, I only represent okay. him. Just I'm sorry, I, on, I only represent him for the appeal and for a sanctions motion we have pending in court. Okay, fair. So now this, now that he's been subpoenaed for this probe, Jack Smith's probe, how would you advise him if he were your client and do you think he'll talk? Huh. It's too speculative, I think, for me. I haven't seen any subpoena um, and I don't know exactly what the subject is, but assuming it's January 6th, um, again, I can't tell you how I would advise Steve Bannon. I would advise any client that I have... Uh, in this situation, especially when that person is a, uh, thrown around in the media, at least as a, uh, someone who people would like to get, let's just say, um, I would advise them it's not in his or her best interest to testify. We've only got a, a few seconds left, but I do want to follow up on what you were saying about the memo that was written. Sure. Have you seen any, I understand perception, have you seen any evidence that the special counsel's team, that Jack Smith, that anybody that's involved in the current investigation on a ground level uh, that could be in the process of working towards an indictment, uh, has had uh, a specific agenda? Has You've seen something publicly that gives you a sense that this is political? Because that was the implication you seem to be making. At least Monaco's not, while she's the deputy attorney general, she's not on Jack Smith's team, technically. Oh, yeah. Well, she's certainly a person in a position to make a decision. What I've seen is a 185, 186-page memo by Andrew Weissman, Norm Eisen, and others who have been after Trump as a career for the last couple of years. Andrew Weissman, very close with Lisa Monaco. She was sort of an acolyte of his coming up. I worry about those kinds of things. They send the wrong message. We shouldn't have an agenda by people who hold themselves out on television, otherwise former prosecutor, member of the Mueller I commission. I just don't understand the so connection. I, I get what you're message. saying. I don't understand what this has to do with the team that's actually working on this investigation. I understand the perception. I understand what I think people it's say on Twitter. To I think it's, I'm sorry. Yes, sir. No, no, no. I, I'm mm -hmm. just, I'm trying to. I think to, it's intended to influence them. That's. Okay, and you think that it would have an effect, even though there's no evidence that it has or has played a role I think on the team? It, I, I cannot tell you there's any evidence whatsoever that it's had any effect. That's 100% true. I think it's intended to have an effect. Yeah, understood. Dave Schoen, this is a really helpful perspective across the board on this one. Thanks so much. Thank you. Nice to have him. Really important point. Intended to have an effect versus any evidence of a, an effect are very different things. Two different things. Thank you. It's good to have his perspective. Okay, this morning to this, you're waking up, if you're in many parts of this country, to thick smoke from Canadian wildfires continuing to smother the East Coast and the Midwest, air quality plummeting for tens of millions of Americans. This is a live look at New York City, currently the most polluted major city in the entire world. The most polluted in the world this morning, yesterday. 
Manhattan looked like, well, the surface of Mars. You can barely see the skyline through the orange haze. The governor of New York has called this an emergency crisis. Take a look at this now. A time lapse of New York City turning dark orange in a matter of a few hours as waves of smoke continue to pour down from Canada. Hospitals saw many more patients come in with respiratory issues. And this isn't just a public health problem. The FAA has just issued a ground stop for New York's LaGuardia Airport. Big sporting events, Broadway shows, they were canceled. Some public schools are closed today. And the bulk of this smoke is shifting south to D.C., Baltimore. This is what it looks like at the Capitol right now. Brian Todd is live on the streets of Washington, D.C. Pete Montine is standing by with information about flight cancellations. I want to start with you, Brian. Um, compared to yesterday, what are you looking at as this seems to be shifting toward D.C.? Phil and Poppy, it is miserable and getting worse. It is worse than yesterday. They knew it was going to get worse when they figured that the smoke and the haze was going to start to shift from the New York City area down here. And we're going to show you uh, just how bad it's getting. Our photojournalist Steve Williams, as I step out of the shot here, he's going to train his camera down Pennsylvania Avenue here toward the U.S. Capitol. Now, on any normal day, even if it's raining, you can see the Capitol really clearly down Pennsylvania Avenue, but take a look. Steve's gonna go in as tightly as he can, but even then, you can barely make it out. Take a look at that, it's really extraordinary. When I was driving in here from across the river in Virginia, you could also barely make out the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial as you're coming across the bridge. And if Steve um, you know, trains his camera down to street level, you can also kind of see what, uh, pedestrians and tourists and commuters are up against. The visibility is not great. We've seen a couple of joggers come through here and bicyclists. That's what you're not supposed to do. Um, and, you know, what, it's just dangerous to be out here. I can also tell you what it feels like physically. It, it feels it, it gets into your lungs. It gets into your eyes. It's very irritating. We've seen people donning uh, K95 uh, uh, masks. Uh, to you know the the old COVID mask that they've had during the pandemic, they're breaking those out again just to get to work. Now here's what officials are telling people at this code red air quality alert. They're telling people avoid exercise and any strenuous activity outside. For people who are older, 65 and older, also children, people who pregnant women, people who have pulmonary issues, you really have to stay inside is what they're saying today. Um, keep your windows and doors closed. You can run your AC, but keep the uh, outdoor air intake valves closed so that that smoky air from the outside does not get inside. Also, make sure your filters are clean. Those are warnings from D.C. and Maryland and Virginia officials to all local residents this morning. What we also can tell you is that Johns Hopkins Medical Center in Baltimore, they told CNN yesterday they had double the number of patients that they usually have coming in with pulmonary issues. So it is worse today, and it's going to get worse later on. Phil, Poppy. Brian, thank you very much. Well, let's bring in now CNN Aviation correspondent Pete Montine. There's a ground stop at LaGuardia Airport. Pete, what can you tell us about the schedules right now? Things changing by the moment, Phil. You know, the ground stop was just put in place by the FAA at LaGuardia. Lasts until 745, but the FAA says it could be extended. And the agency is warning of ground stops from Charlotte all the way up to New York today. BWI, Dulles, DCA, uh, all the way to Philadelphia, Newark, JFK, all under the possibility of ground stops as the day goes on. Yesterday was really a banner day for delays and cancellations in the U.S. And we know 
know that when these happen, there is really a cascading effect. More than 5,000 delays nationwide yesterday. Today, so far, just check FlightAware, we've seen about 470 nationwide, about 50 cancellations so far, but the day is still pretty young. Think back to yesterday, and I want you to look at this incredible video that a passenger took as this plane that he was on was descending into Newark. He said you could smell that thick red smoke from the seat he was sitting in. So we will see as today develops, there could be even more delays, more cancellations on par or higher than yesterday. Phil, Poppy. So Pete, you're a pilot. I'm not. And I'm blissful in my ignorance about (laughs) what safety issues this might cause. What are What what should flyers, what should pilots, uh, what should airlines be concerned about right now, safety-wise? The visibility is the big issue, Phil. And the reason why the FAA puts in place these ground stops and ground delay programs is to essentially extend out the conga line of planes coming into busy airports when they can't see each other eye to eye. They need to keep the space between them much further apart to make it so it's safe. So really, this is a safety issue, but also that equals a scheduling issue, making these delays and cancellations really pile up. Pete Montine, solid conga line reference, my friend. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> Thank you. New video just into CNN. This is Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky visiting the Kherson region, devastated by that flooding after the destruction of the critical dam. We'll get the latest on those evacuation efforts that are still underway. Plus, a second Republican billionaire, actual billionaire, just jumped into the 2024 race. Today, I'm officially announcing I'm running for the President of the United States of America. That would be North Dakota, uh, Dakota Governor Doug Burgum, and he is going to join us next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This morning, we're following some developing news out of France. Overnight, police in the French Alps detaining a man after he allegedly attacked at least six people in the city of Ancy just a short time ago. Now, French officials say there were four children among those hurt. CNN's Melissa Bell joins us live from Paris. And Melissa, tell us what actually happened here. Well, what we're beginning to get, Phil, from eyewitnesses, French media sources as well, is a pretty horrific picture of what happened in a park just alongside this very picturesque lake in southeastern France. Uh, Children, uh, families would have been out there. It's really hot in France right now. Uh, And what we understand is that this uh, young man, who's now in police custody, went on the rampage uh, with a knife. Uh, hurting two adults, uh, but more troublingly, I think, for the entire country as we watch this unfold, uh, four very small children are now understood to be in critical condition. And when I say very young, we're looking at preschool-aged children at this stage, Phil. Uh, a fairly frenzied attack. Uh, he was, unusually in these cases, not neutralized, as the French tend to do, uh, but taken into custody. So we do hope to find more about what his motives may have been. For the time being, I think I should say that the anti-terror unit uh, has not been seized of this. They are keeping an eye, but there's no suggestion this is part of a terror plot. Uh, We await more details, even as France starts to come to the terms with something that is very unusual in this country, and that is an attack on small children, Phil. Melissa Bell, please keep us posted as we learn more. Thanks so much.
In Ukraine, rescue operations ongoing in the southern region in Kherson, in that region this morning after the devastating dam collapse. Earlier this week, Russian officials say at least five people have died from that flooding. They're also warning of unsanitary conditions and mines in the area. Ukraine's military says about 1,500 residents have been evacuated from that region so far with more than 230 square miles flooded. I mean, look at that video. Look at all the flooding. These are entire communities that remain underwater this morning. And the flooding has also spurred fears of an ecological catastrophe. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky visited the area on Wednesday. He met with rescue workers. He also urged the international community to come forward with a really swift humanitarian response. Well, North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum is in. He just threw his hat into the already crowded race for the GOP nomination. We need a leader who's clearly focused on three things, economy, energy, and national security. And that is, and that is why, and that is why today I'm officially announcing I'm running for the president of the United States of America. So let's give you a little bit of a rundown about the governor. Grew up in a small town in North Dakota, a town with a population of just over 300 people. In the 1980s, he mortgaged part of the farmland he inherited to invest in a software company, then became that company's CEO, and sold it for a billion dollars to Microsoft in 2001. In 2016, he pulled off a major political upset when he run, won the Republican primary for governor. Question is, of course, can he do it again? And on the biggest stage, and oh, by the way, he's running against the former president and at least eight other major candidates. Well, we're going to ask him. Joining us now to answer that question is the candidate himself, North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum. Governor, thanks so much for your time. Um, I do want to start there, though. I don't think there's any uh, equivocation with uh, your record in North Dakota, both from a conservative perspective, also from a results perspective to some degree. But, but Rob Port is a political writer in the state who I've uh, followed pretty regularly since 2016 during your race, um, wrote something in the Grand Forks Herald. He said, Burgum has to do something to address his obscurity problem. He needs a hook that will get him attention. He didn't provide one today talking about your announcement. He's going to have to soon. Um, Rob is a very astute observer of these things, and I think he makes a good point. People don't know necessarily who you are nationwide. How do you change that? And tied to that, how much money are you willing to spend to ensure that change happens? Well, I think the first thing we have to do is introduce ourselves to the American people, and we're excited to get started doing that uh, yesterday and, and today. We're heading to Iowa today, and tomorrow we'll be in New Hampshire this weekend. But we've got a great story to tell. Uh, North Dakota has been thriving. Uh, our state is uh, growing and getting younger. We're our economy has become so diverse, we're on our way to having the highest GDP in the nation. And one of the things that we think is missing in this race is people actually talking about the issues that are the most important issues to the most number of people. And of course, that is the economy. Inflation is cutting into every single family uh, in their budgets across the, the nation. Uh, gas prices are too high. That directly relates to energy policy. And of course, there's a lot of concern about the future because uh, from a national security standpoint, these are all interrelated. I mean, Putin never invades Ukraine if he doesn't have, an, have Western Europe entirely dependent on his energy sources. I, I We're understand. looking at the possibility of the same things. Yeah, no, I was going to say, I understand and watch the, uh, your announcement. Many of those issues, minus the North Dakota origin, are what several candidates are laying out as key priorities, key issues, key issues they wanted to solve. 
I think the point that Rob Poor was making that I tend to agree with is you either have to do something kind of insane to get a lot of earned media attention, which doesn't seem like your brand at all, or you're going to have to spend a lot of money over the course of the coming weeks and months. So which is it of those two? Well, I, I just reject the premise on that. When, when I started into the software business in, uh, in the early part of the industry, we, first trade show I went to, Comdex, we you know, picked up the, the, uh, the trade show manual and there were 64 companies trying to do the same business plan. And when you, if you're trying to differentiate yourself, you don't start out by attacking your competitors when you're an unknown. You have to make sure that people know that you've got a quality product, that, you, that you've got solutions that are important to them. And that's the message that we're gonna focus on. Let's get into some policy uh, questions, and we're so glad to have you on for the first time on CNN This Morning, Governor. Um, <coughs> as governor, you signed uh, one of the most restrictive abortion bans in the country. It's an abortion ban at six weeks. You wrote in your Wall Street Journal op-ed yesterday, though, sort of more broadly, uh, just in general, about federalism, saying we need to return power to the states. Does that mean, as president, you would not sign a federal abortion ban of any kind? That's correct. Uh, I think the the decision that was made returning the power to the states was the right one. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think uh, we're going to have, we've got a lot of division on this issue in America. And what's right for North Dakota may not be right for, for another state, Minnesota, California, mm -hmm. New York. Uh, I think it's important that the federal government uh, push the decisions back to the local level, whether that's the state, whether it's a school board, uh, whether it's a city council, that the best decisions are made locally. One of the most important things a CEO can do is to really prioritize what that organization should focus on. And the federal government's got a limited set of, of powers that they're supposed to focus on. One of those is, of course, the border, the national security. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's so many things that the federal government does related yeah. to the economy. And I, I think that that's where, that's where as president, I would have to focus yeah. their time. And we, we, the 50 states are actually like 50 platforms of innovation. Innovation has driven our country. And we keep trying to come up with one size that fits is, all solutions for almost everything. That is one of the most direct answers we've heard from a Republican yep. contender so far on that question. Very clear. I appreciate it. You also made a point not to campaign on culture war issues. But what's interesting is that most recently you've signed at least eight laws focusing on the transgender community. And I want to ask you about one, because just two years ago in 2021, you vetoed a bill that would have severely restricted, just would have completely restricted trans children from playing in sports. And you said at the time, this bill would unnecessarily inject the state into a local issue by creating a ban with a myriad of unforeseen consequences. Why did you sign a near similar ban this time around? Two years later, you completely reversed course. And I'm interested in why. Well, it wasn't a, it was not a a course reversal, it was basically the same principle, uh, which is two years ago, we had a great organization, the North Dakota High School Athletic Association. Their job was to ensure fairness in all sports, both uh, girls and in boys high school sports, uh, and they were doing their job. And so when I vetoed it two years ago, I just said, hey, the state doesn't need to be in this space. Uh, they've they enhanced their rules to make sure they were ensuring fairness in girls' sports. Uh, this year, our legislature felt very strongly that they wanted to put into code uh, what 
the rules were that the state association was doing. Uh, and, and it was overwhelmingly supported in our legislature. And again, this is a case okay. where I respect the different branches. Oh. Uh, and, and so basically we're okay. carrying on the policies that w well, were in place. Just to be clear, um, SB 1249, which was the one you signed now, uh, seeks to ban transgender students, including kindergartners, from playing school sports consistent with their gender identity. Two years ago, House Bill 1298 sought to ban transgender kids, K-12, through from playing on school-sponsored teams of their identifying gender, and that's the one you vetoed. Um, I do want to ask, uh, well, and oh, sorry, go, well, you got a couple seconds. I, I want to get one more question in, but go ahead and respond. No, I was just going to say, I mean, the key here is uh, ensuring fairness in, in girls' sports. We did that two years ago, and we did it again this year. Um, I do want to ask, I'm going to stun you here, and I'm going to ask about the former president, um, which, you know, as you head into Iowa and New Hampshire and uh, the facts of the political press follow you around, probably going to have to get fairly used to that. My question, though, is less about his role in the campaign and more about your view of the seemingly potential indictment. You know, we, we have the news of the target letter. Uh, Mike Pence last night, the vice president, former vice president, CNN Town Hall, said he did not believe the president should be indicted, should be charged. Um, he obviously is not looking at the specific evidence the prosecutors are. What's your view on that at this point? Well, I just think there's an entire industry with lawyers, pundits, uh, analysts. Uh, there's a lot of information that's unknown in these cases, whether it's about President Trump's documents or President Biden's documents. Uh, and I would just leave that for all them. I mean, everything else is just speculation. I'm sure it makes for good cable news, but our campaign is going to be focused on, uh, on the economy, on energy and national security. And we're going to be focused on the future. Uh, as I know people want to spend a lot of time talking about the past. We're going to be talking about the future because that's what matters to this country. Do you think if the former president is indicted, he should still be a potential Republican candidate for president or Republican nominee for president? Well, I just think there's a lot of voters out here that are going to have to decide who, who their candidate is. That's what the democracy does. And there's a lot of folks uh, that are wondering whether or not uh, these processes at you know, the Justice Department have become politicized. And I think that's that's what the America is going to be sifting through that. But we're going to be focusing on on the policies and the approaches and the that we know can help drive America forward. We've got a mission to help improve every American life. Uh, we can do that by focusing on the things we're going to focus on. And we think Americans are interested in how their lives can be improved as opposed to uh, some of the other topics that may be more backward looking. We're going to be looking towards the future. Spent a lot of time in your state, both Phil and I have, and it's a wonderful place. Thank you very much, Governor Doug Burgum. Please come back. Well, thanks, Poppy. Uh, we're ha always happy to have you and Phil here anytime. Thank you. Thanks, Governor. Appreciate it. All right. Well, the question a lot of people this morning are asking is, how dangerous is it to actually breathe in the smoke throughout the East Coast? Is it dangerous for my family, my children, my pets? Good news. Dr. Sanjay Gupta will join us live to give us some of those answers. Plus, international soccer superstar Lionel Messi stunning the world, announcing he's coming to play in the U.S. after turning down an offer from the Saudis.
Welcome back. This just in to CNN. Joran Vandersloot, the prime suspect in the 2005 disappearance of American teenager Natalie Holloway, has left a prison in Peru on his way to the U.S. Here he was just moments ago, leaving that prison in Lima, where he's been serving a 28-year sentence for the murder of a Peruvian woman. Now, he's expected to board an FBI jet and travel to Birmingham, Alabama, where he'll face new charges of extortion and fraud in connection with the plot to defraud the family of Holloway. Natalie Holloway was last seen alive 18 years ago, leaving a nightclub in Aruba with Vandersloot and two other men. The body has never been found. This also just in. The FAA has issued another ground stop at New York's LaGuardia Airport due to low visibility as some 75 million people remain under air quality alerts across more than a dozen states due to smoke from Canadian wildfires. The city of Philadelphia right now also seeing hazardous air quality. Joining us now is CNN Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Dr. Gupta, thank you for being here. I have never seen something like this, and yet we're hearing this morning from our correspondents and experts that we may need to buckle up because we might see this more this summer. How dangerous is it? Well, I think that the way to think about this is when you're just thinking about air, uh, breathing in air, it's 21% oxygen, you know, uh, mostly nitrogen, and now you add all these particles to that. So just sort of visualize, that's what you're now breathing in. And some of these are really tiny particles, they're different sizes, but it's these really small ones that you can then breathe into your lungs that, that people sort of fundamentally get. It can irritate your eyes, things like that. But what it can also do, because they're so tiny, it gets down to the base of your lungs, potentially even into your bloodstream. That can cause clotting problems. People who have underlying heart disease that has not yet been problematic could suddenly find themselves having uh, issues with their heart. So these people are most at risk. You know, people uh, who, who, for respiratory events, for cardiovascular events, even for pregnant women, there's a slight increase in preterm birth risk. So the, that, that's the real problem. And, and young and old are the ones who are gonna be most at risk, but everybody's at risk, as I think you guys are alluding to, when you just step outside. So it's, it's, it's a problem, you know, and, and I think, again, trying to imagine breathing in that slurry mix is really the, the, the biggest concern here. You, know, you lay that out, and I'm going to be completely candid, seeing people with masks, seeing government officials say stay inside, uh, there's a level of, uh, and I'm being dead serious, of kind of PTSD that I yeah. assume a lot of people have right now. But, but it's important, given what you just laid out, what can people be doing right now to protect themselves? I think if you uh, fundamentally think about this as a big weather event, which it is, uh, you would sort of approach it the same way. So first thing, you know, check the air quality in your area, um, just like you check a weather map. Airnow.gov is a way to do that, and you can find out just by putting in your zip code what is the actual air quality. But you know, uh, the, the, the basic things are gonna be the, the most recommended. Stay inside when possible. When it comes to masks, the previous uh, sort of guidance was wear masks indoors. And now they're talking about wearing masks outdoors, but the fundamentals about it, it should be a good high quality filtration mask and N95, it should fit well. That, you know, that's where these masks really came from initially was from the environmental world. So they can be quite helpful in these situations. If you have asthma, um, you're gonna be particularly at risk. Uh, there could be a recommendation from your doctor to use a rescue inhaler about 15 minutes before you go outside, as opposed to using it when you already develop symptoms. And then really making sure, as we've talked about throughout the pandemic, of improving the air quality inside, uh, you know, inside spaces as well, your home or your work, uh, using HEPA filters, things like that. 
If you can see the smoke, if you can smell it, you're breathing in those particles I just tried to give you a visual of, and that's what you're trying to avoid. Sunday, switching topics because you have a fascinating new interview on your podcast. This is with U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murphy, and it's all about his, I think it's just an alarm bell that he rang a few weeks ago about yeah. the crisis uh, facing us because of social media, particularly facing our children. You know, th this is such a fascinating topic. And as you well know, both of you know, I have three teenage girls. Uh, so social media and devices and how to navigate that world. I mean, it didn't exist when I was a kid. So it's unprecedented, but just how to figure it all out is a challenge. And, um, you know, one of and people, you know, there's potential concerns, there's potential benefits. How do you sort of weigh all that? The Surgeon General has an advisory, as you know, and, and the Surgeon General, you typically think about, you know, big things, opioids and, and nicotine and things like that. I wanted to understand where is he placing his level of concern when it comes to social media? And I asked him specifically about that. This is your experience, but how worried are you when people hear something coming from the Surgeon General's office? They think of, you know, smoking, you know, opioids, things like this. Social media, is it at that level of concern for you? Yes, I would say yes, it is. And, but it's more complicated because with smoking, and which was an issue that our office, the Office of Surgeon General, has been engaged on for decades, that was more clear cut in some ways. There were a lot of harms associated with smoking. It was hard to make the case that there were health benefits from smoking. Social media is more complicated. So the, the issue is that we need to use these devices. We need, um, to some extent, people are really dependent on social media. So, you know, nicotine has no redeeming qualities. There's no benefit to it at all. Here, this is more like food. Maybe it's bad food and you're eating too much of it, but it does provide calories. So how do you navigate social media and devices? I'll just tell you really quickly, because I know you have to go. Um, the average person picks up their phone and just looks at it hundreds of times a day, hundreds of times a day. Most of the times, it's just like a comfort tool. That, that's why they're doing it. But it sort of perpetuates this constant cycle. Catherine Price, uh, who's a science journalist, she said, just ask yourself three questions every time you pick up your phone. What for? Why now? And what else? And I, I, I just find that really uh, helpful. Pick up your phone. Just say, why, why am I really doing this? What else could I be doing instead? I think it can make a huge difference in terms of how we approach our relationship with devices. I think it absolutely could. Sanjay, thank you very much. I can't wait to listen to the full conversation. We appreciate it. Thank you. you can all not only listen to it, Sanjay has a really fascinating op-ed on yeah. CNN.com, an essay, his reaction to what the Surgeon General Vivek Murthy actually said to him when he talked about how this is a crisis for us. The Supreme Court is set to decide on key issues like voting rights, affirmative action, and the student debt forgiveness. We could get some of those decisions this morning. Plus, sources tell CNN the Justice Department has informed Donald Trump's legal team that he is indeed a target in the classified documents investigation, what it could mean about a potential indictment. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, in a few hours, the Supreme Court could issue decisions in some of the 27 cases it heard this term. Major rulings expected on the EPA, affirmative action, and student loan forgiveness. CNN's Joan Biskupic joins us now. And Joan, first, let's start. What do we think we may hear today? 
Oh, it's so hard, Phil, because they don't tell us ahead of time what we're getting. And we've got about two dozen cases left to go and they've got 20 days. They tend to save the hardest ones for the last. But let me just tell you the three buckets that our remaining cases fall into race, the balance between religion and gay rights and executive branch power on the race one looking at challenges to Harvard and the University of North Carolina, their affirmative action programs where they've taken race into account uh, for applicants to try to build campus diversity. There's also a major challenge to the 1965 Voting Rights Act on the religion. It's another balance between uh, where uh, somebody's free speech rights ends and a gay interests begin. Uh, that involves a a wedding website designer that doesn't want to do a message involving uh, gay couples. And finally, on the executive power that I want to mention, very important case for many of our viewers involving President Biden's loan forgiveness for the student loan program and whether that was properly within in his domain or whether Congress should have been able to do that, uh, actually had to say that first. Huge deal. What is the extent of a president's power and authority without the check of Congress? Joan, before we go, Really interesting sure. financial filings from the justices, everything from very expensive flower deliveries to trips to Europe, and then some justices who haven't submitted theirs yet. Exactly right, Poppy. And you know, we were all watching yesterday because we wanted to see what Justice Clarence Thomas would say, because he's the one who's been under such scrutiny for taking, you know, these lavish trips and having uh, private financial dealings with uh, Republican billionaire Harlan Crow. And we wanted to see, you know, just what he was going to disclose this time around. But he and Justice Samuel Alito have gotten extensions. They can take up to 90 days, Poppy, which was which would land us somewhere in the middle of August for those. But in terms of what we did see, uh, you mentioned uh, a couple of sort of curiosities. You know, we have our first African-American woman justice on the court and Ketanji Brown Jackson received several, you know, things that congratulated her, including a uh, uh, four figure floral arrangement from Oprah Winfrey congratulating her. So that was that was some set of flowers for her too, Poppy. <laughs> indeed, yes. indeed. That's what Phil is going to bring his wife when he returns from a week in New York. And Why are you doing that? She's taking care Why of her. Why are you doing kids. that? I'm just saying. <laughs> Excellent idea. She's a poor loan. Joan, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, on that note, uh, Lionel Messi, considered to be, by many, by me, the best soccer player in the world, but in history, is heading to Miami. The elaborate deal that got him there and what it could mean for the future of soccer in America. And Will Smith, apparently. Will Smith. Well, that popular commercial showing the generations of Lionel Messi will need an update because the next version will be taking the Argentine legend to America. The seven-time Golden Boot winner, considered by many, including me, to be the best soccer player in history, he's left Paris, uh, Paris Saint-Germain and is heading to South Florida, where, he'll, where he will play with David Beckham's Inter-Miami. Joining us now, TNT and Max soccer analyst, former MLS and U.S. men's national team midfielder, Kyle Martino. Uh, Martino, I love kind of the I'm just full here for the Will Smith, by the way. You're I mean, welcome for that. It's just actually, be, that was Poppy. That was actually Poppy's, I saw Poppy Poppy's iPod. Um, <laughs> the, I, I love how it all kind of connects to some degree. Beckham, who was kind of the big international star who mm -hmm. came here and gave the big boost, um, owns Inter-Miami, and you're here. You played with Beckham. Uh, when he came here. I did all of this. Yeah, yeah basically <laughs> this was you making this all happen behind the scenes. But 
tell people maybe who don't follow soccer as closely, yeah. uh, one, the level of surprise this is, and two, what it does for the MLS. Um, I mean, I think it's a big surprise in that this is the, the largest athlete in the world. You said the best player of all time. I'll, I'll, agree? I'll, I'll agree with you on that one. Um, you know, it's hard to, hard to pick a word that captures the magnitude of this moment. And um, I think for sports fans, the easiest way to put it into context is the last time a great athlete that was arguably the best in his sport went to Miami two decades ago was with, you know, LeBron leaves Cleveland, and that's big news. This is so much larger than that because this, this is global news. We're going to live in a Truman show of Messi now. Where does he eat first in Miami? <laughs> When's his first practice? And so uh, for soccer fans, they'll remember some of them. Pele comes in the 70s, yeah. huge moment. Beckham comes in 2007, and I was there and had a front row seat where we went from, like, I felt like I was in one direction. You're working in, like, a bakery, and next thing you know, you're, like, selling out stadiums. <laughs> and, and now the Messi coming, it, it's just at this inflection point for soccer in this country as the, the greatest sport on the planet and the biggest sports market on the planet is gaining momentum ahead of the 2026 World Cup. I mean, th this is a force multiplier in many ways. It's like we're finally catching up, by the way, with the rest of the world. My family members in Europe think we're crazy. It not everyone is obsessed with soccer in America, but as you said, the World Cup is coming. It'll be the U.S., Mexico, Canada in 2026. Yeah. What does this do for that? I mean, it, it, it just puts this... In terms this... of the American audience and interest. You know, it's funny. Last time I was here, we were talking about Wrexham, right? Yes, and then, yes. you know, we're talking about Ted Lasso. Um, yeah, th this is a cultural thing. I mean, this is just so much bigger than between the lines. I mean, Messi, he just... He fully encapsulates what it means to celebrate the beautiful game. Coming off of a, a World Cup win where he was the best player. I mean, this isn't watching. This isn't. I, I kind of think of when Jordan came back with the 45. I was like, ah, oh, man, like, I that loved you right. so much. And you were the great. You're the, one of the greatest athletes of all time. But maybe you should. Maybe this wasn't the time to come back and play. I mean, Messi is still. He's 35. People say, you know, he can't play at the top level. You're going to see a player that. Um, I mean, it's just balletic. It's just beautiful. And what it can do for the game in this country is the entire world is going to be looking in through our window to see what soccer means to us. Um, there has been constantly this idea that this will change how people view soccer in the United States. This will be the thing. We have changed our youth programs. We have started to build. We have never, we've had some disappointments on the, the international stage. Does this change things? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's funny, like, we used to have a chip on our shoulder. I grew up loving soccer, and it was kind of like an underground. You didn't want to admit it in school. Right. And, you know, at this point, that, 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 that insecurity is gone. I mean, it is much cooler. We, we're, we're a great soccer nation. Our women win World Cups. You know, we, 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 are, we, are, we are a massive soccer nation. Are we catching up with hundreds of years of history? Yeah, but things like this, I think, can only take the, the natural inertia of this great game growing in this country and just put wind in its sails. And so, you know, for me, like, I just turned back into the nerd soccer fan. I'm no longer Kyle, the former player or, or analyst on TV. I, I'm, I'm just the, the kid, the soccer nerd that wants to, you know, go to the stadium and, and feel yeah. the energy of that. That's do, awesome. do I get to call myself a soccer mom? Because I take Luca to super soccer yes. stars now. We're going to You're Miami. Proud of You're it. in. We're all going to Miami. Yes. You're taking and paying. You made this all happen. <laughs> I, got, I got it, guys. Kyle Martino, thanks so much. Yeah. Man. Appreciate it. Seeing this morning continues right now. It's kind of scary out here, like the apocalypse is about to happen. And it's hard to breathe. It feels like I'm at a campfire that I don't want to be at, and there's no s'mores. Amen to all of that. It's not the apocalypse, but it sure looks like it. Good morning, everyone. It's the top of the hour. We're glad you're with us on CNN this morning. Phil Mattingly is here. Good morning. 
Good morning. Um, there's a lot of news. There's a, a lot, lot of important lot news. Of More news. sound good, but let's focus on the news. <laughs> let's first focus on the news, including this: flight delays at New York City's LaGuardia Airport as thick smoke from Canadian wildfires smothered the East Coast. We'll tell you where the smoke is heading this morning and which cities could see the worst of it. And it is the clearest sign yet that Donald Trump could be indicted over his handling of classified documents. Sources telling CNN the Justice Department has informed the former president that he is a target in the special counsel's investigation. And happening right now, Joran Vandersloot is on a flight to the United States. He will face justice for allegedly trying to extort Natalie Holloway's family. This hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. This is where we begin this morning with new developments in one of the many investigations facing former President Trump. Sources say the Justice Department has informed Trump's legal team that he is a target of special counsel Jack Smith's criminal investigation into the possible handling of classified documents. The target letter is the clearest signal yet that Trump is likely to face charges. Trump has repeatedly denied wrongdoing. He argues he declassified papers when he was president, but that is not really at the heart of all of it. Let's get to CNN's Sarah Murray with more. This is a critical development, extremely significant, and something that has never happened to a former U.S. president. It is, Poppy. And, you know, it would be such a historic development if, in fact, Donald Trump is indicted. But that's skipping ahead. You know, what we know from multiple sources is that Donald Trump's legal team received this target letter. You know, we didn't see a copy of the letter. It was described to us. Uh, and we know that this is the strongest signal yet that Donald Trump could face an indictment. It's not a guarantee. It's possible in some cases people would receive target letters and not be indicted. But look, this is a pretty clear signal of the direction this is heading. And it really does crystallize that prosecutors in this case are focused on the behavior of former President Donald Trump, not just focused on the behavior of those around him. And we know, we've been reporting for weeks, that there are signals that this investigation is winding down, that prosecutors have spoken to dozens of witnesses, including people like Mark Meadows, who is a, a very important witness, Donald Trump's former White House chief of staff in this investigation. So again, this is a hugely significant development in this case, Poppy. You know, Sarah, um, obviously we've known how serious this was to some degree based on the reporting. This seems to, uh, seems to certainly ramp that up to some degree. How is the Trump team responding to this? Well, we haven't heard, you know, a lot from the Trump team other than from Donald Trump himself, who has taken to his social media platform to say, no one has told me I'm being indicted. He goes on to say he shouldn't be indicted because he's done nothing wrong. Of course, we're not saying that prosecutors called up Donald Trump and said, hey, you're going to be indicted. We're saying that prosecutors have sent this letter to Donald Trump's legal team informing him that he is a target of a criminal investigation. Not only are there so many questions about when this might happen, questions about where it could happen. What do we know? Yeah, that's right. I mean, a lot of our reporting has really focused on what has been going on with a federal grand jury that's based here in Washington, D.C. But we've also learned that in recent weeks, there's a grand jury that is in Florida that has also been hearing testimony from witnesses. So this raises a big question of if prosecutors are going to move ahead with this indictment, which venue are they going to seek to move it in? Is it going to come in Washington, D.C.? Is it going to come in Florida? And again, you said the question is when. We know from the activity around prosecutors that it looks 
looks like this case has been winding down, but that, of course, doesn't give us a clear timeline of whether we could see something, you know, in the no next couple of days or whether it could be longer. But as you guys might expect, we, of course, have teams in Florida and in Washington, D.C., and we're looking for any developments today. Sarah, thank you very much. You guys have been working around the clock on this reporting. We really appreciate it. Thanks. Well, joining us now is former Attorney General and former White House Counsel to President George W. Bush, Alberto Gonzalez. He now serves as the Dean of Belmont University College of Law. And I think I just want to start with, to, to pull back a little bit, because there's so many elements of this, so many disparate threads of this. A target letter, how significant is this, particularly in the context of a former president? Well, it is historic with in the context of a former president. But uh, a target letter is very significant. Uh, it's, I think it's more likely than not. It's actually, it's quite likely that um, an indictment is coming. Of course, uh, as everyone, everyone has been saying, legal experts have been saying, there's no guarantee here. But uh, I wouldn't want to be the, the subject of a target letter. And so I think that uh, uh, President, former President Trump and his team are probably preparing for the war and getting ready to um, fight the charges that are likely to be coming. The Ellie Honig uh, did a great job of laying out sort of what a target letter would would mean and just some of the language used by the Justice Department. Substantial evidence linking him or her to the commission of a crime and who in the judgment of a prosecutor is a putative defendant. Is it rare that someone would not be indicted after getting a target letter? Is it, isn't that pretty rare? Yeah, it would mean that that that. Um that something has happened, something has been uncovered, uh, perhaps a witness has recanted or, or said something different that has caused the department to step back. But as a general matter, the department has done its job. Uh, it's, decided, it's made the decision that we're about ready to go forward. Yes, it would, it would be unusual. Um, I'm most interested as a former attorney general about, um, you know, the discussions that have occurred between Jack Smith and the leadership of the Department of Justice and uh, the mechanics of how this is going to roll out if, in fact, there is an indictment. Uh, very curious about how that's going to work. I think what you're likely to see, I think as this process moved along, uh, the Deputy Attorney General has had conversations from time to time with the special counsel to make sure that the special counsel is following the rules and procedures of the Department of Justice. Uh, the day-to-day -day supervision is not being conducted uh, as you might normally have by the leadership over this investigation. But nonetheless, the special counsel is required to follow the processes and procedures of the department, and, and which as an example of that, you've got the target letter. That is what the Department of Justice does. And then of course, um, the Deputy Attorney General is likely to have conversations with the Attorney General about where the, where the investigation is, how comfortable they are with respect to the process, uh, but the actual determination of whether to move forward, it lies in the hands of Jack Smith. And they're going to defer to that judgment. And Jack Smith, at the appropriate time, will tell the deputy attorney general, you know, I'm ready to go. The deputy attorney general will then have a conversation with the attorney general. The attorney general may want to have a direct, direct conversation with Jack Smith just to hear him out, talk about the case. And then probably at the appropriate time, maybe an hour or so before the, before the department issues its announcement, uh, there'll be a conversation probably between the bag and the, and the White House counsel about uh, what's about to happen. Um, I don't think the White House will get much notice in advance of that, 
But generally, that's the way that it would have operated in the Bush administration. That was actually a remarkably concise breakdown of the entire process and answered several of my questions about said process. But the one that I kind of still have right now is, you know, the attorney general, you make a great point. There are very specific rules and regulations that the special counsel, as drafted, will have to follow throughout this entire process, has had to follow. Is there any situation where you as a former attorney general could see the attorney general uh, going the opposite direction of whatever his special counsel recommends or says he wants to do? Well, the only situation that I think that the attorney general would perhaps um, disagree with moving forward is if he's convinced that, in fact, the normal processes and rules and procedures of the department were not followed because they're intended to ensure that everyone is treated the same. And we want to make sure in this particular case that no one can make the claim that Donald Trump has been treated any differently than any other American or any other person uh, in our criminal justice system. So, but that's the reason why you would have co uh, intermittent conversations between the special counsel and the DAG, the deputy attorney general, about you know what is the process, what are, what are we doing, what have you found, what what are your conclusions. Uh, so, I, I, it would be extremely unusual, and quite frankly, um, it, it's politically dangerous for the, the attorney general to disagree with the recommendation or decision of the special counsel, and it would it would take extraordinary circumstances for that to occur, in my judgment. Yeah, there's a lot to play out on this one. It's very helpful and detailed explanation of the process ahead. Former Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez, thanks so much. Thank you, Mr. Thank Attorney you. General. All right, now to what you are seeing, many of you, outside of your window, tens of millions of Americans waking up to this thick smoke from Canadian wildfires continuing to smother the East Coast and much of the Midwest. Air quality is deteriorating quickly. It is so bad right here in New York City that it is currently the most polluted major city in the entire world, the haze is so blinding. There was another ground stop at LaGuardia Airport this morning, and the FAA says flights will be delayed on average about an hour. Take a look at Washington, D.C. right now, which is 200 miles, by the way, south of New York City. The bulk of this smoke is shifting south to the nation's capital, also to cities like Baltimore. You can see how bad it's already getting there. Brian Todd joins us in Washington. What does it feel like? What does it smell like? Well, Poppy, you can actually, you can smell it. You can smell smoke in the air. It's almost like being near a campfire here in Washington, D.C. You mentioned New York City. The air quality index right right now at this hour puts us at about the same level of poor air quality that New York is experiencing. I'll step out of the shot here. Our photojournalist Steve Williams will train his camera down toward the U.S. Capitol. You can see just how hazy it is. Now, the difference between now and an hour ago when I joined you is that the sun is more prominent in the sky right now, of course, and the sun is out. There are no clouds covering the sky. Normally, it would be a beautiful day out here, but look at it. It is incredibly hazy, incredibly smoky. Down Pennsylvania Avenue, this view that you're seeing here here. Normally, it, you can see the Capitol very, very clearly, even when it's raining. But look at it. You can barely make it out against this kind of white, yellowish sky in the backdrop. And if Steve puts his camera down at street level, you can actually see what pedestrians, commuters, and others are up against as they try to make their way around the city. The visibility is not great. We see a lot of people out here wearing uh, N95 masks from the COVID days because it is kind of tough to walk a long way. They are advising people do not uh, do anything strenuous outdoors. It is a code red air quality alert. We can give you some other updates, too, as to what's going on in this area. We just got word that the Fairfax County school system has canceled all outdoor activities today. That means recess for the kids 
not happening outside. You got to do it inside. Sports activities canceled. Uh, marching band practice canceled. Even mowing operations are canceled for Fairfax County schools. The Washington Nationals baseball team here did not cancel their game last night against the Arizona Diamondbacks. We know that Major League Baseball games in New York and Philadelphia were canceled last night. The Nationals have a 1.05 p.m. start slated against the Diamondbacks today. I'd frankly be surprised if that game went ahead of schedule, given the air quality behind us. Uh, What officials are saying is stay inside. You can use your air conditioners. Make sure that your, uh, your air intake valves are all closed to keep that smoky air from getting inside. Don't do anything strenuous. People with lung conditions, pregnant women, older people, got to stay inside today. Don't even bother venturing out. It's just too dangerous. And this kind of smoke and haze is extending all the way into the Carolinas at this point, Poppy. So it's just just getting much worse. And it may not, we may not get any any relief here as far as rain or anything, Hmm. maybe until this weekend. And that's what Dr. Sanjay Gupta said to us. The people that really have to worry are the young and the old. Brian Todd, thank you. Well, to show you how thick this smoke is, we're going to put together some before and after photos of New York City's iconic landmarks. Look, I've spent many an hour next to this beautiful beast breaking down very complex data from election nights. Sometimes it's just pictures that tell the best story of all. Take, for instance, uh, the Chrysler Building. This is a before. This is clear Chrysler Building. This is normal. This is in the current state of affairs. What about the Empire State Building? Clear Empire State Building, beautiful skyline. What about now or over the course of the last 24 hours? That's your view. World Trade Center. Right there, the Freedom Tower. You look clear. Now you look not clear. Look, I understand this seems very simplistic, but the binary view of what's going on here gives you a sense of what's been happening. Beautiful blue skies. This is the moment we're in weather-wise, season-wise. This is what New York has been experiencing. What about the Brooklyn Bridge? Beautiful. What about now? can't even see it. A lot of people are wondering, could we start seeing more of this? This isn't just a New York thing, this is across the East Coast. But particularly because of climate change, what we've seen out West, what we've seen up in Canada, coming down. Canada's already on track to have its worst wildfire season ever, and it just began last month. CNN Chief Climate Correspondent Bill Weir is live in Brooklyn. And Bill, this is, as I noted, the sort of thing you would expect on the West Coast, not here. Not at all. In fact, as as frightening as the air quality levels were yesterday here, they were nowhere near what it was in San Francisco and Seattle last year in those epic wildfires out there. And unfortunately, this is something that the East Coast may have to get used to now because, you know, we thought maybe that fires were a Western phenomenon. You'd like to think that that's someone else's problem. But on a connected planet, this is proof now. New science shows that 60% of this smoke pollution people are breathing in the United States is coming from a different state that's far away from them. And so you really can't escape it now. It's just the beginning of fire season uh, up north. You can see this morning it's cleared out a little bit, a lot better than yesterday. I woke up, the air quality index was about 191 this morning. Yesterday it hit 484. This is a scale of zero to 500. Uh, Now, uh, this is also a big reminder, this incident, Phil, Uh, of the glories of the Clean Air Act, because in Asia, the big cities in Asia, especially India, what we've been seeing here is just an average day. In China, they had an air apocalypse back in 2013 where the air quality index was over 700 and people were literally trapped inside their houses. And then China decided to clean up and now they've had record clean air. Meanwhile, India 
which still burns a lot of coal, has unchecked uh, motor regulations. They burn their fields for agricultural purposes there. Life expectancy in India is nine years shorter as a result of their air. Uh, new science is looking at wildfire smoke as it compared to other emissions. In some cases, it can be 10 times more hazardous, these PM 2.5 particles right now. So we're going to have to learn the way we had to learn how to deal with COVID and those sorts of things. This may be a smoky summer on the East Coast as we understand the connection with yeah. our overheating planet. Maybe, by the way, the wake-up call that everyone needs uh, on that. Bill Weir, thank you very much. Well, happening today, Joran Vandersloot, the prime suspect in the murder of American teenager Natalie Holloway, will arrive in the United States. Here he was just moments ago. New details on where his case will go from here. Also, Vice President Mike Pence making his strongest public rebuke yet of his former running mate and partner Donald Trump, saying Trump should be disqualified. But could Trump ever get his support again? We'll tell you. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, this morning, Joran Vandersloot, the prime suspect in the 2005 disappearance of Alabama teenager Natalie Holloway, left a prison in Lima, Peru, for the Air Force Base. He will board a plane headed for the United States. He, is being, he has been serving a 28-year prison sentence in Peru for the murder of a Peruvian woman. Now, this plane will fly to Birmingham, Alabama, and that is where he will face new federal charges of extortion and wire fraud in connection with a plot to defraud Natalie Holloway's family. Our Jean Casares has been following this case for years. She is live at the airport in Birmingham. Jean, good morning. Good morning, Poppy. We do understand that Joran Vandersloot has arrived at Peru's Air Force Base. It is there where he will become the custody of the United States. He will be in the hands of the FBI. Now, we are here at Birmingham. We are here in Birmingham, Alabama's airport. This is where Natalie Holloway was from. This is her community. And this is where Joran Vandersloot will be brought to face those charges of extortion and fraud. Now, what we do understand happened this morning. The president of the Penitentiary Institute of Peru had told us that when Jorn Vandersloot would leave Lima's prison, that he'd be put in the custody of Interpol. Interpol would then take him to Peru's Air Force Base, where we do know he is now. And what will happen is that the FBI, taking him into custody, We'll put him on the FBI's executive jet, the 550. This is the one that is used for foreign transport of those that are in custody. They will fly from Lima, direct here, to Birmingham's airport. This is when he'll touch down. We believe it will be this afternoon. He will be taken into custody in Alabama. We'll go to a holding facility where he will be kept for the night. Tomorrow, we will believe that in federal court will be his arraignment, his initial proceeding, where he will have to say before a magistrate judge if he is guilty or not guilty, and then proceedings will begin in the federal court here in northern Alabama. Poppy? Gene, we're glad you're there tracking this all. Thank you. Well, the 2024 Republican race getting crowded and getting a little fiery. How Chris Christie responded after Trump posted a video mocking his weight. It's so childish. It's so juvenile. He is such a spoiled baby. Let me be clear that no one's above the law. I would just hope that uh, there would be a way 
for them to move forward without the dramatic and drastic and divisive step of indicting a former president of the United States. Former Vice President Mike Pence last night to our Dana Bash addressing the Trump legal developments. CNN learned minutes before that town hall that the Justice Department is telling Trump he is a target in the classified documents probe, meaning prosecutors may be moving closer to indicting the former president. Now, Pence said no one is above the law, but in contrast, that a former president should not be indicted. Regarding January 6th, Pence said Trump should be disqualified based on his actions around that day. But then he also pledged to support whoever becomes a Republican nominee. Anyone who puts themselves above the Constitution should never be president in the first place. And anyone who asks anyone else to put them over the Constitution should never be president again. And I've always supported the Republican nominee for president of the United States. And I'll support the Republican nominee in 2024. What's missing from the first statement is the name Trump. What may be missing from the second statement is the name Trump. And what will he do if that's the case? Let's talk about all of this and what we saw last night with Pence and a lot more. Joining us now, CNN political analyst and national politics reporter for The New York Times is Ted Herndon. He also has a fabulous podcast called The Run Up and CNN senior political analyst and anchor who's all equally fabulous, John Avalon. Good morning, guys. John, let me begin with you. You have a really interesting column coming out. I got a sneak. We got a sneak peek. Imminently. 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 Here's the first line. If a perfect Republican candidate was created in a lab, it would look a lot like Mike Pence. Mm -hmm. But... But, and that's the problem. He's actually uniquely suited to sort of bridge everything from the Bush era to the Tea Party to the Trump era. Um, Earnest evangelical, fiscal, social, conservative, national security hawk. But um, the base doesn't like him because they're actually not being motivated by those traditional coalition policy politics. Um, It's in, in the wake of Trump become about who can articulate the accumulation of my resentments. And that's not the kind of politician that Mike Pence is. Also, He is a talking point automaton. I mean, he is incredibly disciplined as a messenger. And that doesn't read to some people as authentic, even though he's undeniably earnest. Mm -hmm. Sid, can I ask you the idea of nobody who's above the Constitution should ever be president? Yeah, dude, I'm totally in on whoever the nominee is, including if it's that guy that I've said explicitly was above the Constitution and asked me (laughs) to throw the Constitution to the side. Like, I understand to us, like, threading that needle doesn't make a ton of sense. Is that a needle that can be thread in a Republican primary? I mean, it's a hard needle to thread because Republican voters are coming at this in a similar way where they see that as inauthentic, too. If you're coming from a place as a Trump supporter, he's someone who has had that kind of flip-flop. He has had a moment when he has done that backing. He has had moments when he has seemed to try to call him out. And what we have seen consistently is that the Republican electorate does not like when folks go back and forth. Him, Nikki Haley, folks have really paid a cost by not kind of choosing and sticking with that line. But I also think it's really it's a difficult position to be a principled conservative while attacking Donald Trump. Because Donald Trump is not a principled conservative, <laughs> right? And so it does, and so it's going to force you in to these kind of contorted positions. Because to be explicitly anti-Trump is to be a loser in this Republican primary. But the facts cause you to have yeah. to uh, create that but separation. I, I think Governor Isa Hutchinson, another Republican candidate for president, uh, basically called on the party writ large, mm-hmm. yeah. saying maybe we need a rules change here if the former president is you know, convicted. Listen to what he tweeted. The GOP, if he's indicted and if there's a conviction, mm-hmm. if the GOP, the GOP, he says, should clarify that there is no pledge to support a nominee if they are found guilty of espionage or a serious felony. Donald Trump is the target of an ongoing criminal investigation. He should step aside and put the good of the country above his candidacy. How will the party 
officials see that? Um, they should see it as common sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, that shouldn't be a high bar. Uh, that and should yet. be, and mm-hmm. yet. Um, that speaks to the dangers of a cult of personality in a party that's still enthralled to a former president because they're frankly afraid of the base. Um, but that's a perfectly common sense standard. And, and when, when Mike Pence gets twisted up in pretzel logic about trying to have it both ways about those sorts of things, it's partly a process question problem you know, about the debates. And the RNC could resolve that immediately just by setting out that common sense standard. This is the perplexing part to me about kind of how Republicans have not attacked Donald Trump on this legal question consistently. Is there uh, there's some kind of feeling that the next indictment will do the work right. for them exactly. or that there's a kind of ground that's tilled for the Republican Party to, to do what kind of Governor Hutchinson is asking for. But because there's been so consistently that rhetoric over years that the federal government is targeting conservatives and Donald Trump being most emblematic of that, it has not created space for that. The electorate is ready to defend Donald Trump because the party has frankly told them that is a necessary thing to do. Also, there's been like seven years of Republicans being like, this next thing is going to be the thing. thing. That's how's that working out for you guys. Exactly right. Stead Herndon, John Avalon. Guys, thanks as always. All right, we do have this news just in. Influential conservative Christian broadcaster Pat Robertson has died. He was 93 years old. Let's take a look back at his life with our Stephanie Elam. Lord God, fill me now with your spirit. Pat Robertson was a seminal figure of the religious right. He founded the Christian Broadcasting Network, the political advocacy group, the Christian Coalition, and the Christian College Regent University. But he was also known for his outspoken views on homosexuality, feminism, and a host of other hot button issues. There isn't one single civilization that has survived that had openly embraced homosexuality. In 2001, he agreed with fellow televangelist Jerry Falwell that God allowed the 9-11 terrorists to succeed because America had moved to the left and removed religion from the mainstream. I, I totally concur. The Yale Law School graduate and Korean War vet had a religious awakening in the late 1950s. He bought a bankrupt local station in Portsmouth, Virginia, and it became the first outlet for the Christian Broadcast Network. It was the first Christian TV network in the U.S. and became one of the world's largest TV ministries. Its flagship program was the daily show he hosted, The 700 Club, named for the 700 donors who launched it in 1961. I plan to make a formal announcement of my candidacy for the Republican nomination for the presidency of the United States. Robertson, whose father was a congressman and U.S. senator, ran as a Republican presidential candidate in 1988. He came in second in the Iowa caucus, but his campaign didn't fare as well in other primary states. He dropped out of the race and returned to hosting the 700 Club, where he famously made bold predictions that didn't always come true. Romney will win the election. You believe that? I absolutely believe that. What makes you believe that? Because the Lord told me. Pat Robertson, a key founder of the conservative Christian movement who never shied away from expressing his views, no matter how controversial they might be. Thoughts with his family, of course. A conservative revolt paralyzing the House of Representatives as Speaker Kevin McCarthy struggles to win over some hardline members of his own party. We'll speak to a member of the House Freedom Caucus next. And later, a researcher and scientist is about to resurface after living underwater for 100 days. So cool. He'll join us live from under the sea. Coming up. <laughs> Who's this? Who's this? All right. 
quick check on the economy. This just in. Weekly jobless claims ticked up a little bit last week, surpassing expectations. Initial claims at 261,000, an increase of 28,000 from the week before. This jump comes as the Fed meets next week to decide on interest rates. And will they hike again? We're going to show you a live look at Capitol Hill, where tensions between House Republicans have brought a halt to the chamber. You're seeing the building. Members don't have a lot to do inside the building today. Because of those tensions, Speaker Kevin McCarthy canceling votes for the rest of the week after a rebellion from roughly a dozen hardline conservatives frustrated by the Speaker's handling the debt ceiling and some other issues. Take a listen. Yeah, today we took down the rule because we're frustrated at the way this place is operating. You know, we took a stand in January to end the era of the imperial speakership. Well, here's how Speaker Kevin McCarthy responded to that infighting. There's a numerous different things they're frustrated about. Um, so we'll listen to them. We'll solve this. Just like every time we go through here, we've got a small majority. Uh, there's a little chaos going on, but uh, the focus I always keep is right in front of the windshield, the American public, and we're going to work to solve the American public's problems. Joining us now is Republican Congressman Warren Davidson from Ohio. He is a member of the Freedom Caucus, serves on the House Financial Services Committee, and should know he voted in favor of the debt limit deal, voted for Speaker McCarthy on every ballot during the Speaker election in January. And Congressman, I, I bring that up because sometimes Freedom Caucus or kind of conservatives, they, they are framed as a monolithic block that doesn't have differences of opinions or differences of votes. This is roughly, uh, you know, a dozen members. I think there are a couple of issues going on here. Um, some having to do with Congressman Clyde, some having to do with the, the fallout from the debt ceiling deal. My question right now is, how does this get resolved? Because this could be a blip or this could be a significant problem. What's your sense of things? Well, I think the, the overall strategy is we, we recognize we do have to move forward together. Uh, I think the, those folks who objected to the rule felt like uh, there was a break of that resolve to work together. They feel like they were left out of the final negotiations. And uh, they basically, you know, engaged in a tactical surprise to take down a rule to remind uh, not just the speaker, but everyone, hey, uh, we need to work together. Don't leave us out. Is this, you know, you, you mentioned, I think it was actually very clever uh, as a former congressional quarterly reporter slash procedural nerd to go the take down the rule route, tactical surprise, as you note. Um, however, is this a move up a continuous escalatory ladder, as in is the next step moving towards going after the speaker himself? Or is this a warning shot, then people pull back? Yeah, we'll see. It's not clear uh, that it was tied to uh, a clear strategy that, hey, this is exactly what we want. Uh, but it was a reminder that, you know, at, at the end of the day, we need to work together. And, and clearly these folks felt like there was a break from that resolve to work together. If it does escalate even beyond a potential motion to vacate, you know, when it comes to McCarthy, what about getting spending bills passed and averting a government shutdown? I mean, the way that Matt Gates. Put it, he said, House leadership couldn't hold the line. And then he tweeted, now we hold the floor. Doesn't sound exactly temporary from his perspective. Well, Matt's never really been on board uh, from the beginning of the year. I hope that we can continue to work together. The reality is, if, um, if there was an effort to undermine Speaker McCarthy, that would leave uh, Senator McConnell as the only uh, power broker uh, amongst Republicans in D.C., and frankly, his record on spending is not very good. The Senate was already clamoring uh, to spend more. So for those folks that had a hard time getting to yes on the debt limit, mm -hmm. look, I wanted to 
I wanted to vote no on the debt limit until we had a balanced budget attached to the debt limit. That's the rational position we should all be uh, behind, but there aren't votes for that. So it's like, well, what's the most conservative position that can actually become law? And we got the largest cuts that we've ever had as a, as a body. Uh, and we got caps on spending. People said those aren't real. Well, the senators, when they were debating it, certainly felt like it, they were real. We got work requirements. We got uh, reforms to permitting for uh, NEPA and, and more. So uh, were there things that were left on, away? Yeah, I, I think absolutely. But inherently in a compromise, there were going to be conservatives that couldn't get the yes on the bill. And there were going to be progressives that couldn't get the yes on the bill. And that's kind of the, the mean of the bell curve. And I think that's what passed. You know, you mentioned Leader McConnell um, and Senate Republicans being frustrated, uh, one with the cast, particularly on defense spending, but also with the concern that there will not be uh, the support for additional Ukraine funding. You know, your position on this has been very clear. Um, would you say that the possibility of Ukraine funding with your Republican majority, with members like yourself who have your concerns, that there is not going to be any more Ukraine funding. You guys could control that, uh, depending on what the speaker does and where uh, your side of things ends up. Well, I haven't voted for any funding for Ukraine yet because we haven't created a mission for Ukraine other than help Ukraine. I mean, that won't get you out of uh, infantry officer basic course for sure. You have to define a mission. And this is incredibly important that the nation does that. Uh, we're still kind of engaged in this endless war mindset, more wars in more places. And we need to get back to the principles that we had kind of post-Vietnam era for a long time is, let's de decide the mission and decide the exit strategy before we commit ourselves to a war. In the case of Ukraine, it really is a proxy war. Uh, and, and so I think that's important. But as for funding, uh, we set caps and whatever spending we do need to stay within those caps. So what you're saying right now is in your view, there should and will not be any more Ukraine funding based on the agreement that was just reached? Well, there should be no funding outside of those caps. If uh, the biggest uh, priority for national security is somehow uh, Ukraine, I, I look forward to hearing that debate and seeing that intelligence. Uh, and we set a cap for defense funding. Uh, it's hard for me to see how that would, would be you know, the, the resolution. Uh, and clearly, that's not what Lindsey Graham's talking about. He's talking about spending outside the caps and there was a period like that for a long time called OCO, Overseas Contingency Operations. And they would pretend that they weren't spending this. Right. They would exclude it from Congressional Budget Office scores and everything else. It was complete path to bankrupting our country and, and you know, more wars in more places with no definition of victory right. uh, is a big part of the debt that's been racked up. It's, it's going to be an intense debate going forward. Congressman, I know you'll be in the middle of it. Middle of it. Warren Davidson, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. A live look at Philadelphia, where the FAA has just issued a ground stop there. Remember, there was a ground stop here in New York, now one in Philly. Because of the low visibility from this wildfire smoke, the air quality in Philadelphia now deemed hazardous. We have the latest on that. Plus, if you've ever wondered what it would be like to live underwater, our next guest has done it for nearly 100 days straight. Dr. Joseph Duturi joins us live from under the sea. You can see him right there, coming up next. You know what song we should play, guys, bumping in? Great morning moment for you. 100 days, that is how long our next guest will have lived 22 feet under the sea when he resurfaces tomorrow. We're talking about Dr. Joseph 
DeTory. He set a new world record last month, all in the name of science. Today is May 13th. That's day 73, which means that I just broke the world record for the longest time spent living in an undersea habitat. It feels like time has flown by because I've been doing scientific experiments. We've also exceeded every one of our outreach goals by reaching over 2,500 kids in 90 outreach sessions from 10 different countries. This mission is his latest adventure on a quest to find out how well can humans survive in isolated, confined environments. And we are joined by the man himself, literally under the sea. Dr. Joseph DeTori joins us. He is a diving explorer and a medical Hi. researcher. Hi, underwater, in the water. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Happy World you Oceans Day. Oh, is it? Happy World. Did you know that? Yeah, obviously. Yes, That's well, why we put the thing behind No us. coincidence that the last day me being down here is World Oceans Day. Oh, my. <laughs> so you made it. How does it feel? Oh, it feels wonderful. It's a, it's like the culmination of the entirety of what we've been trying to accomplish. And we've upped those numbers from the earlier statement of 2,500. We've reached almost 5,000 kids in science, technology, engineering, and math. We are just, thanks to you guys, we're crushing it. Can I ask, you broke the record days ago. Why are you still there? Why are you still there? <laughs> <laughs> Well, because we set out with the goal in mind, the singular goal in mind, to see what human duration is, right? To extend to 100 days, to put a line in the sand of 100 days. It was never about the world record, not for me at least. Uh, it was about seeing what happens to the body when you leave it in this place. So we took blood, urine, saliva, all kinds of electrocardiograms, electroencephalograms. We did a lot of scientific research down here that's going to be practically applicable to us doing any kind of stay duration anywhere, like going to Mars or like living in the ocean, if you will. What about the loneliness impact? I know that's scientifically hard to measure, but anecdotally, what's it been like for you? It's it, it has been tough. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to lie that uh, what we miss as humans is what we learned during COVID, that humans need tactile interaction. Humans need that handshake, that hug, that high five, something, right? And, and we learned that during COVID, and I personally relearned it again down here, and hopefully we can pass it on to the next generation of kids to not be here, to be more here. Uh, and that's, that's certainly something we need. So it's something we got to deal with as a society. Yeah, it's, a, it's a great message, particularly for kids. Um, got to ask before we go, what's the first thing you're doing? What are you craving or looking forward to most when you step out back onto land tomorrow? Uh, <laughs> I am a creature of the sun. I'm so looking forward to the warmth of the sun and a great sunset. Oh, we'll give you that. You're going to get one. I just feel it. Dr. Joseph DeTuri, this is so fascinating. I can't wait to show my kids, what you've done, and your book we see behind you, Secrets in Depth. Thank you, thank you, and we'll see you when you, you know, ri rise up. Congratulations. This is super cool. Have them tune in to Dr. Deep Sea. There's some good stuff out there, too. Thank I you will. so much. Okay, thank you very much. And thanks, all of you, for joining us on a very busy news day, what I think is going to get busier as the day progresses. No question. Maybe we should talk about it tomorrow morning. Yeah. We you want to come back? back? If you'll let me. Come back. It's Friday. Thanks for joining us. See you tomorrow morning. CNN News Central starts after this. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app.
Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.